compost is one of those words in natural farming that means a lot of different things to different people. And yet, we have conversations about compost, assuming we all mean the same thing. I certainly didn't grow up around compost or compost tea, and I only really started considering it when I started focusing on natural farming techniques as an adult. And then, of course, I read Teeming with Microbes by Jeff Lowenfels and got really interested. If you've been listening to Shaping Fire for a while, you've probably been sitting right here with me as I had some of my biggest breakthroughs in understanding what compost is and why it is the essential building block for natural farming. Today is one of those shows, and I bet we learn a lot about compost together. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire and I'm your host, Shango Lose. My returning guest today is soil biologist Leighton Morrison. Layton is a lifelong enthusiast of both aquaponics and living soil. His obsession with Biosphere 2 led him to set up an aquaculture at the Rodale Institute. Layton worked with world-renowned biologist Dr. Elaine Ingham, blending his aquaculture byproducts with compost and worm castings to prove that natural inputs could replace synthetics in commercial cultivation. Layton consults widely for agriculture, soil regeneration, and commercial land management projects throughout the United States, including recently working on the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing over Highway 101 in California that will be the largest wildlife crossing in the world. Layton is currently founder of Kingdom Aquaponics and invented their line of living compost and compost tea living soil products. Layton's a sought-after speaker and co-host of a weekly podcast on the Future Cannabis Project YouTube channel. Layton has been on Shaping Fire a few times before. Episode 54 about geology and biomimicry in living soil cultivation. This was the episode that brought Layton's popular soil horizons concept into mass adoption. Episode 59 on water and watering. Episode 82 about properly using aerobic and anaerobic soil amendments to meet the needs of your soil at different stages. In episode 87, where we do a debrief on the first cycle of the Shaping Fire indoor growing tent, where we test regenerative techniques indoors, including his Horizons model for living soil. So, you might ask, Shango, why bring back a guest for a fifth time? And that's a fair question, and I have two answers. First, have you heard any of the Leighton Morrison episodes? They're incredible. The depth in them is hard to ignore. Leighton has the scientific background, plus is an ardent natural farmer, and he actually grows stuff and doesn't like live in a lab. He's kind of like Indiana Jones in a way. He has the academics down solid, but he spends most of his time in the field applying these skills in orchards and soil regeneration projects, research and development, cannabis cultivation, and he's even a consultant for the Dallas Cowboys, keeping their grass practice field thriving. Second, I looked for someone else to be on this show. I got referrals from friends and peers. 
Everyone I looked into was an expert at making thermal compost, scoping compost, and teaching it. For this episode, though, I needed a scientist who could look beyond this one category of thermal compost to the larger picture of soil microbe inoculation, which is what I'm most interested in and I think is what people actually want when they make compost tea with thermal compost. So, in the end, I called up Leighton and I asked him to join me for this episode, and that I wanted to go big and cover a lot in one episode. During today's episode, the first set is a review of different varieties of compost, their benefits and challenges, with a special consideration for the home grower. During the second set, we talk about creating the highest amount of microbe activity in compost, cold compost, and how to use it without fear of pathogens. And we wrap up with the third set discussing compost grain structure, how to make premium cold compost, cold compost extract, and even make compost shelf stable for use throughout the year. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Leighton. Uh, thank you, Shango. I look forward to it as always. Yeah, man. It's always great to have you here. So let's get right into it. You know, uh, I've been thinking about doing this show about the varieties of compost for some time, um, but I really didn't decide to pull the trigger on it until you and I had that <clears throat> conversation just a few days ago where you started kind of like teasing apart um, this compost question I had in my head. And, and, and you know, even though the, mo- the, the goal of today is to kind of uh, talk about the, the science of um, the so- science and the biology of soil structure, um, I want to start with the rather mundane um, question that I approached you with, because um, even though we're eventually going to go somewhere heavier and more biological, I can't be the only one who is a cultivator who who uh, looks at these different varieties of compost that we have available to us and and trying to figure out which ones are most viable and which ones are like you know garbage and I shouldn't even consider so um, so so let's let's go through the list of the the six varieties of compost that I have come in contact in my world <clears throat> and and let's just talk about each of them individually um, so that when when cultivators who in, um, come in contact with these other types of compost know how to judge them okay so so Let's start with the most common kind of compost, which is uh, the bagged stuff that they sell at the store. And, and I'm not even really talking about necessarily like really good quality bagged compost, which I'm assuming there is such a thing. I'm talking about the kind of stuff that they sell <clears throat> for six bucks um, in front of the grocery store in the spring. And, um, you know, that stuff come different kinds of company bag those up where, where I live. Um, there's a company that actually collects, um, uh, yard refuse, yard and garden and food refuse um, from in front of people's houses. And then they take that to their big facility and they air quote, make compost. And, and then when it's done, they put it in a bag and they sell it back to us for six bucks. All right. And so, um, you know, it says compost and, and, and so many people are buying it for their gardens and to make their raised beds and lots of people putting it in pots. But, you know, I buy, you know, when I used to buy these, I, you know, you buy it and you rip it open and, um, and I would smell ammonia and it would use, it would often have white on it. And I'm all like, I don't, I, I don't think that's mycelium. That looks like some kind of 
white rot or something. Um, and then when, you know, as I've gotten more mature in the living soil scene, and I've seen the kinds of composts that um, living soil artisans make, I'm really like, how, how dare they sell this bagged stuff as compost? Is it even compost? So, so let's talk about that first. Um, it, it kind of explained to me, I mean, I know each company makes it different, but I think that by probably by the time it's in the bag, they're probably pretty similar. So, so teach me a little bit about what my expectations should be for that compost that's in a sealed plastic bag. All right. Um, so let's start with the word compost. Uh, the word compost is a process. It's not a product. It's not a, a – so I think that that's where the real conversation um, begins is that, okay, um, there are a lot of different types of compost. And, again, because I don't have a better word um, to choose, um, we're going to use that word. <clears throat> we'll get into – what it really means, um, I'm sure, in another set. But for the beginning, let's just say this is a compost. So when you smell ammonia, um, that is part of the thermophilic breakdown of organic matter. Um, you said, well, you, you called it junk. Well, I, I, nature doesn't make junk. <laughs> nature <laughs> right. just breaks down um, organic matter um, into carbon and nitrogen um, all living things are made of carbon and nitrogen along with you know other elements uh, from the uh, periodic tables so just for the sake of keeping it simple um, when you smell the ammonia you are in still in what we call the thermophilic phase you haven't you haven't shifted into the mesophilic um, so that means that active decomposition is happening and that ammonia smell is the release the byproduct of the thermal fights um, knocking the carbon and the nitrogen off um, they can't they can't eat too much nitrogen they really are there for the carbon and so that nitrogen is being released in an ammoniacal gas ammonia gas um, so that product is is unstable if you apply that to um, like healthy young plants you're going to kill them because basically the thermophytes are going to stealing carbon and releasing the nitrogen um, and therefore starve the plant out because the plant actually wants the nitrogen or, or I should say the mesophilic bacteria want that nitrogen um, to break it down and release it to the plant so that they get more exudates. So you're, you're, in, a, you're in kind of a bind. And, and the other thing, the white you saw, well, that's actually actinobacteria. A lot of people confuse uh, that white for mycelium, but it isn't. It's just basically um, the actinobacteria, um, and it's indicating heat, it's that, that there's still quite a bit of heat present in, in that compost. So that being said, um, you're dealing with a product that is uh, unstable. It wouldn't even be considered, you know, home which we'll get into later but let's let's keep me on track here right on um so the, the 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 stuff that's in these bags it sounds like it'd be fair to just call it immature like it is if if our goal was it was a, a thermal compost um i think what you're, i think you're suggesting to me that like like it wasn't finished correct it was <clears throat> unstable 
I see. I think unfinished is a, is a great way to put it. All right. So, so um, as as we know from anything uh, that's made at a scaled level, like like even cannabis flowers, if you're scaling things up, <clears throat> so often the product that comes out is um, you know not premium, and and so these company this, these companies are making like just like thousands and thousands of these bags, and they're kind of rushing them through, and so the fact that we are seeing that bag bacteria and we're smelling the ammonia and it's still breaking down um uh it's essentially just saying that they rushed the process absolutely and the other thing you have to keep in mind too is that at these compost yards they don't have the ability to separate the greens and the browns so that's probably one of the most critical um, pieces of making um especially biological compost is that you have the correct ratio of greens to browns if you have too much greens you have too much nitrogen it's going to go hyperthermophilic and there's nothing you can do to stop it well there is and we'll get into that i'm sure later but there's nothing you can do to prevent that thermophilic phase from continuing until it there's no nitrogen left um to be broken off um, to steal the carbon so that being said if you can manage your greens and browns um, you can put a predetermined point in time and say well you know after six months this is going to be gone through the thermophilic and into the mesophilic mesophilic means stable um, safe to apply will not will not steal nitrogen from my plant and will be a suitable source of of soil organic carbon um, that will provide all kinds of benefits to soil so um so is there a use case for this right i mean you said don't put don't use this stuff on young plants um, because it'll it'll steal from them well i would naturally take that and say well then i i sure as hell don't want to put this in my beds and put my clones or my my seed starts into it and then i'm all like well i probably don't want to use this in my pots either like is there is there any use for these oh this boy bag? that's that's a great question so um yeah, it's a herbicide. <laughs> <laughs> it will so, kill plants. Yeah, yeah. So in my work out here in Cali, um, I'm working with a lot of different farmers and a lot of different, um, you know, growers of different things. When I found out that um, this company, compost company that I've been working with, um, was using it as a herbicide, I was horrified. I was like, oh my God, what are we doing? And then I stopped and went, wait a minute. I don't care if it's herbicide. It's still carbon. It's still getting put into the soil. It's still providing a longer-term um, source of fertility and CEC, cation exchange capacity, um, which is a valuable resource for uh, providing long-term fertility to plants, whether they're you know, strawberries or trees. It doesn't matter. So the fact that they're actually taking this stuff and turning it in um, is actually a benefit because when you stop the thermophilic phase by taking this immature compost and you till it into the soil, you've, you've, you've basically prevented those thermophytes from um, producing that excess gas. So therefore, you've actually put some ammoniacal or nitrate-based fertilizer into 
play because it's no longer gassing off. So it's it actually has a couple different mm. benefits. Um, so that being said, what do you do with this compost? Um, I I would use it as a, a top dressing for for a, a mature lawn or a top dressing for a mature tree. I wouldn't I wouldn't go heavy with it, but I would definitely like sprinkle on a you know half an inch and then just kind of massage it in um, because you're gonna get some benefit from it in in that regard but no way would i put seed starts or clones or anything else into it because you're not going to get a good result so it sounds to me that unless we're talking about uh putting a whole bunch of it on on a on a field or or a or distributed you know cultivation area there really isn't much application for this in cannabis growing which is kind of our point Correct. <clears throat> All right. So, unless mm-hmm. in, unless you take it, open it, and and pile it up and let it go through the phase. Let it. If you, so if you you bring it home and finish it yourself. Correct. Correct. Uh huh. Um, well, we might as well hit that. How would somebody? Let's let's say that somebody only has access to this kind of stuff. How how would you easily finish it at home, assuming you don't have a farm? Um, so you take it back to your place and then blend it with um, other sources of carbon. So wood chips uh straw or not straw uh, yeah straw because straw is more of a, a brown than it is a green it's not hay hay is a green um and leaf litter anything any source of brown maybe maybe be, your last year's soil too yeah 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 it'd be a great way to, to to use up some excess soil um so you just blend it together and then pile it up and and stick your hand in there and if it's if it's heating up add more browns until until you get to a point where it's no longer heating up to a point where it's uh uncomfortable for your arm okay. i mean it if it's if it's at 85 degrees which in many ways is the sweet spot for biological generation. Um, it's going to feel kind of cool to you because you're, you run at 90, what, eight mm-hmm. degrees. So, so it wouldn't be uncomfortable. Now, if you stick your hand in there and it's hot, that means it's above a hundred degrees, uh, 110, 120. It begins to get very uncomfortable. If, if, if it's 130, it's going to start to burn your arm. So that's a good way to gauge um, in the field without a, a compost thermometer um, how you're maturing your compost. All right, <clears throat> cool. So let's go to um, uh, the next. Uh, I'm, I'm making up these kind of bullshit categories myself. So <laughs> uh, let's go to the second bullshit category, which is um, uh, home food waste compost. Now I want to be clear. We're gonna the next the next variety we're gonna talk about is like like food waste compost made by an organic gardener who's like read a book and watched some videos and they know what they're doing. Right. So what, what I'm talking about more specifically are people who've got their heart in the right place, but they don't really know what they're doing. All right. So, so they are people who they are producing uh, home food waste. Maybe they're getting some, some stuff for their neighbors. Um, they don't have anybody with neighborhood pigs to give them to. So they're putting it in a pile and whenever they remember it, um, you know, it'll get turned a couple times a year or whatever and then eventually it you know it does break down it stops to smell it's probably got some like big chunks of stuff in it right and um but uh so it's it's kind of lackadaisical compost but but i come i come i run into that all the time um i will often post to the vashon island you know 
a farm or, 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 or food cultivators list and say like, Hey, anybody got excess compost that you're looking to get rid of? Because I don't really have a lot of space for that. And, um, and, and, you know, sometimes I'll get good stuff, but most of the time it's this, this stuff I'm talking about where, where people are, are making this like kind of like lackadaisical pile. And they're like, yeah, come, come take this stuff so that I can feel good that I've, like moved it back into the biosphere. Um, but I don't know what to do with it. Right. So, yep. so, so what are your thoughts on, on this kind of stuff? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're going to start with, it is also immature. Um, yeah. And potentially pathogenic. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's why when you're dealing with food waste, you really only have three ways to responsibly deal with it. If you just take it and pile it up in the backyard, it's going to stink. It's going to attract pests, uh, ants, uh, unwanted critters, um, you know, raccoons, you name it. So not really um, a smart thing to do. Um, a lot of people that have food waste will often add it to um, a static compost pile, which is yard waste, leaves and chips and everything else that you've um, collected in the uh, spring after the winter and piled up. And, and that's a little bit more safe way to deal with it because you're not going to attract those pests necessarily um, at the same level you would if you just piled it up and let it rot in the backyard. Um, and you'll also get um, some benefit to uh, adding in those browns. Again, greens and browns. Food waste is pure nitrogen. So it's it's going to go hot. Um, it's going to stink. It's going to gas off both methane, ammonia, um, as and and like putrefaction gas. You know, gases that not, <laughs> don't necessarily. Uh, you know, they're not good terpenes, put it that way. Mm -hmm. So, um, as far as like dealing with, with, you know, food waste, uh, my recommendations is to, um, get people to either feed them to worms, um, which is a safe way of, of breaking them down and, and avoiding, um, you know, pathogenic, uh, cross-contamination, which is a real issue. If any of you have, you know, gotten an upset stomach due to something that you ate that was <laughs> not particularly healthy, um, then you would understand that this is not something that you want to have happen to you. An upset stomach is no joke. So, um, in handling that, it's, it's really, you know, again, feed it to worms first, then take the vermicompost, um, and use that as a supplement in your compost or as a top dressing. But again, it can't be gooey. It can't smell bad. Um, it has to have had the opportunity to break down to a point where it's no longer going to be potentially pathogenic. So that's really the, the only responsible way to deal with, with like food waste. Um, another thing is, is you can, um, you know, do something that's a little bit more, um, how we say old style, which is to dig a hole and put your, put your food waste in there and put a lid over the top of it and just let nature do its thing. Um, and, and that's what we would call an anaerobic digestion because it's going to stink like hell down there. Um, but the microbes will naturally break it down, um, and convert it back into organic matter. Um, so there's another way for you to safely deal with your food waste. Um, 
And, you know, a lot of times you've got to keep in mind, too, like, you know, people, oh, eggshells, eggshells are great. Well, they're also got a lot of E. coli on them. Uh, and same with meats. You know, those those meats and, and dairies are, are a little bit more tricky to compost than just fruits and veggies. Um, and fruits have their issue, too, because they have a lot of sugar. Uh, they can attract a lot of pests. But when you get into these, all right, I'm going to throw everything, <laughs> including the kitchen sink, <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> Um, into my compost pile, you really got to go thermophilic. You, you got to cook that stuff hard to uh, prevent any kind of, um, again, attracting pests or, or potential, potential <clears throat> pathogenic, um, you know, uh, cross-contamination. Um, well, A, I never considered the pathogens and I think that's really important, but I got to tell you, <clears throat> got to say, you really got my attention with this, um, anaerobic compost hole um that sounds like a really fun project um is the stuff that will come out of that like rich and delicious for my cannabis plants after it goes through the digestion process absolutely how long does that process take depends on how much you piled in there mm -hmm. and if you continue to pile on top of it um i mean it's think of it like uh like you ever seen a flow through vermicompost uh, system yeah, I have. Where, where you take from the bottom and you feed the top mm -hmm. in the hole, the bottom is going to be where the value is. Um, not the top where you just added stuff. So basically you have to let that sit for, cause you can't harvest from the bottom unless you try to cross tunnel over. Yeah. yeah, That's, <laughs> that's like... probably, probably <laughs> too much work for the word. I'm, in, I'm uh, imagining like fill, fill, like digging a hole, filling it with like, um, kitchen waste. And then when it's, and then, then just fill the hole and then just cover it and leave it and then go dig another hole. And then yes. like, maybe I've got like nine holes and I think you're about to tell me about how long that would take. And so like, okay, I, I make the holes. And then after X variable amount of time, I know that I can go back to hole one and use that. And then like some weeks later, I can go back to hole two. And then when I pull hole one, I can go refill it. Mm -hmm. So, exactly. so how, how long, like, let's, let's just say like, you know, re reasonably, since I don't have a backhoe, I'm probably not going to dig a hole that's, you know, much bigger than three by three. Let's say I wouldn't even go that big. Just oh, okay. use a post hole digger. Right. So just dig a post hole, you know, like me, maybe that's a really small six, eight hole. inches around. Yeah. Six, eight inches around. I mean, how much food waste do you generate? Not a lot. Yeah. So I, I guess, yeah, I guess that's true. Huh? And, and a, great way to um, store it is actually to freeze it so that you can just freeze as you go throughout the course of the week. Uh, maybe it takes two weeks to, to store up enough for a one post hole and, you know, dig the post hole, mark it with a flag and then cover it over with soil on top. And if you go back probably, I don't know, maybe three, five months, three to six months, you will have this amazing black organic stuff with tons of worm castings in it. Wow. Like, and then, and then if they're not three by three holes, I could, you know, I could easily make 25 of these in a yeah, row, each with yeah. each with their own plant tag, giving me their, their the date that I capped them off. Correct. Um, do I need to worry about the, um, the E. coli from the eggshells when I do this style? No, because everything is going to break down. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have rapid decomposition in an anaerobic digestion system. So the the coli is just going to get consumed by other biology. 
um, what if what if I'm a cultivator who's in the ground um, and I have got like a, a a cultivation field? Let's just say I've got three rows of five plants, you know, and uh, and so I've got like fifteen plants. Could I just um, make these post holes? like around my garden and yeah. and then just like never get them out just like yeah. put them in and and just cap it and just say you know all all of this uh, all these nutrients will eventually be accessed by the root zone and they'll be pulled from you know three four five feet away from the plants and they'll just be pulled over by nature and so i'm just kind of um creating these little post holes, like little caches of Mm -hmm. nutrition for the soil and the plants. Is that legit? Absolutely. And I mean, you could take it even further. And um, when you harvest in the fall, um, you know, go next to the root ball. Obviously, I don't want you to take that out. It's valuable nutrition. But go next to it and dig a hole and put it in there. And next year, plant right on top of it. Mm. It'll have six months of digestion. All right. Black gold, dude. Yeah, Black gold. That's a really cool idea. All right. Now, there uh-huh. is one other piece that I left out in, in dealing with food waste. Um, it's called fermentation. Now, that's been a big topic over the last five years For about, sure. you know, JDOM and, and natural farming methods. And so one of the other things you can do, especially if you have a situation where you just, you had a party and you have all this leftover food, like, you know, hamburgers, hot dogs, steak, chicken, pork, whatever. Um, but you just, you're overwhelmed. You have, you have a, a trash bucket full of food. Um, what you can do is actually take that and cover it with water and put a uh, like a wire mesh or, or wire cloth over the top of it so it's held down and weight it um, so that the food and everything underneath it is under the surface of the water. <clears throat> now, this is a way to basically uh, break it down into enzymes very, very quickly. Um, and then those enzymes can be used in for in again in a thermal uh, thermophilic compost and really make that compost explode biologically because you've got all of the secondary and tertiary metabolites uh in in biological food and so of course the biology is just going to go ballistic when it comes in contact with the stuff because it's just ready to eat it's like you know mcdonald's and burger king um <clears throat> so that's another uh component to dealing with with you know food waste now do would i recommend you know doing that on a smaller scale probably not because it's going to be a pain in the ass mm-hmm. whereas you know digging a post hole and dumping you know some frozen um scraps for the last two weeks is a very easy uh to do method whereas this fermentation process takes a little bit longer and again now you've got this bucket um, that you have to let sit for a minimum of probably seven days um, until it, it you've gotten through the the um, fermentation process, and you're probably going to see foam on the surface of the water um, and other indications that it's still very uh, highly active. And so you do not want to uncork this while it's in this again. Um, anaerobic digestion uh, because it's going to stink like hell. But after a period of, you know, I, you know, it depends again on the size of the container, how much you're dealing with, how much meat versus how much vegetables as to how long it'll take to break down. 
But after a period of time, it won't even stink anymore. It'll be slimy. You know, you'll probably get like a mother, um, you know, like a kombucha mother on the top of Mm -hmm. it. Um, But it won't smell anymore. And that's when you know, okay, this this stuff is rocket fuel for biology. Now I take this and add it to my compost pile. It will not stink. And all of those uh, mobile nutrients um, that could wash through the soil very quickly if it rained um, will be consumed very quickly by the biology. Wow, right on. And and when it's in the stank stage, do not get that stuff on you. <laughs> you will smell for days. <laughs> Exactly. All right. So our our next category um, is is going to be uh, what, for lack of a better term, I'll call it curated compost. So this is the kind of compost that is made by you know organic gardeners. Your friend who who knows better took a class, you know, read a couple books. Um, they know what they're doing, and so they're 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 creating their pile, and you know maybe they're even um, you know making sure that certain types of foodstuffs are in there so that the compost that comes out of it has a particular nutrition ratio that they're looking for and uh and and it's getting turned on time and they've got a compost you know thermometer and so you know we're we're talking kind of like creme to the creme of of heated compost piles and and you're very lucky they like you they like the weed that you're growing and they say hey i've got i've got extra of this stuff you know you bring when you want to bring over your pickup and you know get what you want and then you're you're like hell yeah and you go over so so tell me about this compost compared to the other stuff we were talking about so far all right so i'd have to believe um that this this compost curator has has gone through the thermophilic phase and into the mesophilic in other words didn't rush it um use the proper green to brown relationship um whether they used food waste or manure we we call those high nitrogen sources um as long as they're using high nitrogen sources responsibly so less than 10 percent um, and they are going through the process of turning it, like you said, until that gets to the point where it no longer continues to go thermophilic. Now you've pushed it into the mesophilic phase. Now you have a, what I want to call nutrient dense compost. Um, so there's a high value of nutrition there, but I'm not saying that there's biology there. Mm. And, and this is, this is something that um, I've learned over the years. I've, you know, been across the country. I don't know how many times worked with clients all over. Um, I've worked with people that's, oh my God, I make the best compost. You know, old hippies that that you know they've been around for a long time. Uh, worked with dairy farmers, horse farmers, you name it. Generally speaking, the one piece that they're all missing is the biology. Biology takes perhaps a year or two. To come back into that pile after it's gone thermophilic um, to a point where it would get into the realm, just getting close to the realm of what I would call a biological inoculant. So that guy on the farm who's, <clears throat> you know, through his, you know, his yard scraps and his, his vegetable scraps, probably not his meat because he doesn't want to attract the pests um, into his pile and, and, you know, turned it or, or left it static. I mean, that's another way to deal with it. Um, static just takes longer for it to break down, but you're, you're getting, you're going to get a better biological compost, uh, from static 
versus turning. Because every time you turn that pile, every time you expose those microbes to UV, to oxidation through exposure to air, um, you're you're knocking them way back. You're you're basically um, pushing them into a cyst form or into a um, you know, a form where they're being consumed by other biology. So you, you've turned them into a biostimulant, which is basically what happens to thermophytes in a mesophilic phase. Um, they're being consumed by other bacteria and protozoa and, and converted into uh, a what we call a biotic bank account. Like it's there um, and it will be available when uh, the time is appropriate for for the next level of bacteria to be consumed um, and released in plant available form. So you're, you're basically like banking a biostimulant in, in a situation like that, but you're not, you're not producing um, biological compost per se. If I was clear on that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> so um, this, this, this compost that we're talking about that is finished and it is stable um, how are we going to, um, you know, we can use that in, in, in all the ways that we normally think about compost at this point, right? As a, Correct. as a top, top dress, as a soil yep. amendment, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So unlike the other ones that we've talked about so far that have got limitations because they've never become stable, this is the first one in the list where we can feel pretty safe doing whatever we want with it. Yep. And again, test it, <clears throat> you know, stick your hand in it. Pile it up and 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 feel if it starts to heat up again. If it if it heats up, um, then you're still in what we would consider decomposition phase, thermophilic phase. Um, but if it doesn't heat up, or you stick your hand in there and it, it feels a little cool to you, then you you know you've got a uh, stable um, organic matter. All right, cool. <laughs> and we we have to introduce that at some point in the near future. As to instead of calling it compost, we need to call it um, like those terms that I've talked to you about, like ground up organic matter, GOM, uh, POM, particulate organic matter, or MOAM, mineral associated organic matter. Because now you're getting into that point where it's 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 in a phase of decomposition. So everything starts with, with uh, soil and a plant growing and then breaks back down into soil eventually. Yeah, we need, uh, especially since you pointed out at the beginning that compost is really a process and not a product, we really need new vocabulary words for these various products that we're talking about because people say, oh, my compost, your compost, and really people are comparing very different things because they're they're not all at the same um, maturity status. <clears throat> Dude, we did a compost cup out here a year ago, the Ventura County compost cup we brought in all of the local compost producers uh everything from you know the family gardener to uh you know these big companies that make it and you know these you know experts these these are heavy hitters that came um we had 10 judges uh one was a uh soil scientist from rodale others were were business owners who produce large-scale amount volumes of compost um, all the way down to uh, guys that that make what I would consider uh, moam, uh, mineral or associated organic matter, um, and and we put them all out on a table. And I spent 
three days prior to this, uh, microscoping every sample to see which ones were would would I consider biologically um, inoculant. And <clears throat> so we had these ten judges. Uh, I was not one of them because I was biased because I already looked at everything. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we had them analyze it and vote on, you know, each category. We had vermicompost, we had food waste compost, we had uh, thermophilic compost, we had uh, static compost, we had yard waste compost, and you name it, horse horse manure compost. And each one of them um, looked at the samples and then voted based on appearance. Only one person out of those 10 judges actually sniffed it, and that was the soil scientist. And then when it was all done and they all voted, um, at the end of the uh, competition, I, I stood up and I said, hey, you know, I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to come out here and do this. But I want to point out something that um, you guys basically determined the value of the compost on appearance only. And <laughs> everyone kind of looked around at each other like, oh, fuck, mm-hmm. you know, wh- wh- how, he's right. How How, how are we? qualifying or quantifying why this one's better than that one by appearance so i point out hey we did no testing so we have no idea which one's nutritional and which one's not Um, we don't know which ones could potentially have high salt or or heavy metals like the horse manure compost Um, very common to have high aluminum in in horse manure as well as high salts sodiums um, both detrimental to plants um and and also, I biologically scoped all of these, but that wasn't even taken into consideration as to, uh, again, stating that this was better than the other ones in that category. And it was extremely eye-opening. Like that conversation, that the room just exploded in side conversations at that point. Everybody was like, oh my God, I never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. And so it was really eye-opening to basically put that level of of experience in a room together and and turn them on their heads because they basically had no real evidence to determine which was better uh than the other ones except for visually (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's go to our next category so the next one, um, uh, I kind of just put it in its own category because I really just thought that um, um, worm castings were just like a, a, a part of all compost, and that was it. Um, but then um, uh, folks might recall uh, uh, Chandler from, uh, uh, from Wormies, who was on the show a couple episodes ago, uh, talking about worms. And um, like he was kind enough to send me out a bag of uh, the Wormies vermicompost that they make so that I could see what a vermicompost was like. And dude, it's, it's unlike anything else that I would call compost. Um, um, it is, uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it's smaller. Um, it smells sweet. It is, it, it seems more uniform. It seems a little bit heavier. Um, uh, it, you know, when the, when, you know, again, something that's called compost, right? But really, um, you were talking about the pass through, um, 
uh, worm bins earlier, that stuff that comes out at the bottom, which is the, the worms, um, the worm casting. So their poop with, um, you know, whatever kind of like soil or hay that might've been thrown in there to kind of even it out and make it a pleasant living environment, I guess. Um, that stuff while called compost is really its own thing. And, um, and so let's talk about that itself. So, so, you know, you get a, uh, you know, <clears throat> somebody gives you vermicompost and, and it's, you know, vastly worm castings. Um, let's, let's talk about what, what the, the attributes of that compost would be. Okay. That's great. Um, so when you are um, doing vermicompost at scale, um, you have to start with bedding, right? Everybody, you, you can't just throw food in a bin and throw some worms in there because they won't survive. The whole thing will go anaerobic and, and the worms will turn to slime. So you need to create a bedding that the worms can uh, retreat to um, to do their thing, whether it's breed or, or rest. Um, and then uh, an area for them to work through um, to get their food. Um, they don't want to live in decomposing food. They want to live in their bedding, but they want to be able to eat. So think of it that way. All right. So, um, and again, thank you for, for observing the weight of it, because that's really, really important to understand. That's why vermicompost is so unlike other forms of compost because it's pushing on the moem mineral associated organic matter side so mineral associated organic matter is highly stable long term in soil and provides great benefit to uh, helping the 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 soil food web to begin to build aggregates micro and macro aggregates which is important for soil health but i'm not going to go down there so why is vermicompost so much different well those worms have chewed through that material consuming bacteria and pooping out um nutrients highly nutrient dense little poops because they're really there to eat the biology they, they don't really want to eat the the nutrients per se um they they will try they will help move those nutrients throughout the entire uh worm bed um which is again mutually beneficial because now you're getting an even um even amount of nutrients throughout the entire system it's not like this pocket's going to be heavily laden with with this nutrient or that mineral it's been pushed through the whole system so, yeah, worm castings are very special because they are uh, very nutrient-dense and highly biologically available. In other words, if you put those worm castings into or top dress and then apply a, a really good compost extract, a biologically rich compost extract or tea, um, those, those things will be broken down extremely fast and stored in the biology so that they're not mobile. And again, this is really important to understand. Nutrients, if you just take raw nutrient, like a secondary tertiary metabolite, and you put it on the soil and it rains, that stuff's gone. It's going to get washed through and down into the lower soil systems where it's no longer going to be as available um, for the plants. So you've, you've, you've gone backwards. You've lost your minerals. You've lost your nutrients. So that's why it's so important to have that biology 
on, on high numbers so that they can consume those secondary and tertiary metabolites, store them in their biota, in their body, so that now when it rains, um, they're stuck to their biofilm. That stuff's not going anywhere. The only time that stuff, that nutrient in, in that bacteria is going to go somewhere is when that bacteria is consumed by a protozoa or starved to death by a uh, lack of exudate and becomes available to the plant. So that's why worm castings are just so special is because they are basically secondary and tertiary metabolites ready to be consumed by biology, which will then store it as a, uh, a nutrient bank system for when the plant wants them. Special stuff. Yeah, it totally special stuff. And, and, um, you know, I copped this, you know, when, when we did the, uh, you know, uh, you know, making friends with worm episodes, like, I don't know, three or four back with, uh, with Chandler. Um, and like, I'm honestly new to worms. Like I, I like worms. I make sure that I've got worms in my pots, but, but mostly I would just have always thought about them aerating the soil. And, and, but it wasn't until, you know, talked with Chandler that I realized that they are these like super efficient processing machines, biological machines that are just taking these, um, this biology that's not super accessible to us or our plants and running it through their bodies and pooping out the other end, something that is rich and valuable to us. And that's just, that's pretty badass. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. All right. So let's go to the, the fifth category. Now um, we're down to our last two here. So the fifth one, it, it kind of, I'm not sure if it totally fits in this, in this group, but um, since this is where um, my curiosity started uh, for this episode today, uh, I definitely want to include it. So um, for the last, I don't know, five or six years, um, I have been using um, uh, both of the, the, the compost tea making products uh, from green bicycles um, and, uh, 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 Kevin Jodry turned me onto this stuff, uh, one day when I was visiting, um, Wonderland Nursery because, uh, Patrick, the founder of Green Bicycles had come by and he had the, you know, this huge 35 gallon, uh, container of this, 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 uh, what looked like powder. And Kevin says, you know, I swear by this stuff. It makes great compost teas. You should, you should try it. And so I have, and I loved it. I got great results and I've been using it for years um and so so the stuff from green bicycles though is very unlike the other stuff that we've talked about so far today because um the green bicycles products is is not like uh food refuge or or um you know, um you know lawn clippings or or cuttings from my cannabis plants it is a blend of what i think of more as soil amendments right so there's you know there's 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 guano and feather meal and crab shell and you know the kinds of stuff that that we all in the regenerative scene um are known to use to build our soil and and so um he's got two versions of the product uh one of it with um molasses that's dried in there and then and then one that's not and the the one without the molasses is kind of seen more as a soil amendment and the one with molasses is is um as used more as a compost tea and so um so I've been using this stuff for years, but it, it wasn't until, again, I started following um, uh, 
um, you know, the, the Wormies, uh, Instagram and Chandler's Instagram, uh, uh, I think it's Jet Gardens, um, that I, that I really started realizing that the stuff I was making compost tea air quotes out of, um, was not, it didn't look like compost to me anymore. It was, it was a, a bunch of amendments with molasses. And so I, I would always like take that and put that in my, um, my bubbler that I got from tea lab and, um, and it bubble up and it makes this like beautiful compost tea that smells great. And, and my plants have, have done well on it, but, 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 um, I, I'm like, where, where's the biology part of it? And, and, and is this its own category, which I have just started calling a nutrient tea, which it, that category may or may not exist, but like I'm on my own path, right? I just came across it my own and everybody else probably already knows about this. So, so I've been using this. And so, so a, I know it works B I love the ingredients, um, but see, I don't know if bubbling it is actually doing me any good because there, I, I don't think that there's any living biology, but there's got to be biology that is cysted up that was, you know, on the feather meal, on the crab shell, you know, contained in the bat guano. So, so there's like, like there's like cysted up sleeping biology in there, I'm guessing. Um, and then I go ahead and, you know, fire it up and then I get nutrition with, I'm guessing some amount of biology. So, so please speak to that, which, which is a very different it's a very different product to put in, in the same bucket as, as compost, but I really feel like it's got its own personality and I, and I don't know how to resolve it with the rest of this stuff. <laughs> oh, it definitely has a personality. And I, I, I appreciate the, the, the term nutrient um, solution or, or nutrient tea. Um, would be the appropriate way to describe it. Um, the big difference between compost extract and teas versus a nutrient um, tea would be the lack of humic acid, the mm. lack of fulvic acids. Um, those are um, biological superfoods. So basically it's like a one-stop shop for, for your entire soil food web by using um you know these these compost extracts that are very high in humic or fulvic acids. So that being said, now we've we've separated these two by that one critical ingredient. Now let's talk about the two different varieties: one with molasses, one without molasses. I would tend to believe the one with molasses would be working a lot quicker, so a short term, whereas the one without molasses would be more of a long term. Um, nutrient tea. And by that, I mean that when you apply that nutrient solution onto the soil, um, you're, you're assuming that that solution is going to be absorbed by the existing organic matter um, and then slowly released by uh, the bacteria that are mining it and storing it in themselves. And then they become available to the protozoa, which pooped out to the plant, etc. So one is a short-term, one is a long-term. The short-term one with the molasses is going to stimulate all kinds of microbial activity. Um, we know for sure that, that the bacteria just love molasses. Um, there was, I, I 
years ago, I, it got explained to me, and I forget what it is, but it has something to do with the fact that the sugar has only been processed to a certain point. Um, it hasn't been refined yet, and that's why the bacteria love it so much because there's, again, the secondary tertiary metabolites haven't been refined to a point where that they're more difficult to break down. So you're going to have biofilms built up on all of those uh nutrient inputs so um just recently nasa uh came back with an article about how they had slapped some biofilm on the outside of the space station three years ago and they scraped it this year and brought it inside and yes it was still alive even though it had been living in space which is you know how could anything live in space right well it goes to show that that biology is, is incredibly resilient but it also goes to show that <clears throat> the biofilm is so powerful that it can <clears throat> protect those organisms pretty much in any can, in any environment you can possibly come up with um at some point i i tend to believe that we will find um that perhaps life even exists in flames uh, wow. that, that there's some kind of biology that we haven't quite uncovered yet. Um, but that's a whole nother story. Yeah. That's a, but, that sounds like a whole different meaning for the shaping fire podcast right, name, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there someday, hopefully. Yeah, right but, um, anyway, to stay, stay on topic here. Um, so that being said that yes, when you, when you add the dry molasses and you put it in water and you bubble it, you, you're, you're going to, um, get a, uh, bacterial explosion, a uh, plume for lack of better words. And you're going to be pluming out the organisms that were consuming that had, had, had created their biofilm and, and their protection, their home on those individual, um, nutrients, whether it's crab meal, horse, uh, uh, whatever, uh, feather meal, crab meal, calcium, whatever it is, but they will have bacteria that specifically mine those components. And now you've grown them out. So guess what? When you pour them on your soil, you're going to have an explosion of, of the biology that has that nutrient stored up in its pantry that is now going to be consumed by the protozoa and nematodes that you have present in your soil system or or the or the microorthopods so not forget about them um and the worms don't forget about them right because they're all working together to release this nutrients um back to the plant and so um that's that's what i would say to to this uh green bicycle uh, nutrient solution is that it's it's an amendment but yes it does have some um, biological constituents that are available on those nutrients that mine those specific nutrients so very targeted biology right on cool and you know <clears throat> uh, i i started with it just because you know kevin jodry said so right and i trusted his opinion and it's worked for me for years and it's it's funny that now like whatever five, six years ago, you know, later, now I'm really getting to the point that I can even think about more what it is. Um, so I'm, you know, it, it works for me even without knowing exactly what it is. So, um, so <laughs> I like that kind of product. I want to, I want to clean up before we go on to the next topic. I want to clean up a couple of the things that I got wrong. Uh, um, so wormies Instagram is obviously easy cause you know how to spell wormies, but, but, um, Chandler Michalski, who was a guest for 
the for the you know getting friendly with worms shaping fire episode like three back uh, i got his instagram wrong i looked it up real quick it's actually jet house gardens and so nothing worse than you plug somebody whose instagram is very educational for you and then you plug it wrong you know oh i didn't want to interrupt you but i was going to clarify that right but i'm glad you did i'm glad you did first. right on cool yeah so i want to you know i want to do chandler solid so i wanted to clean that up and then um and then anybody who is interested in looking at that green bicycles products um uh it's kind of weird because green is actually spelled g-r-e-a-n and so that's that's you know that's Trixie, and will totally destroy your Google results without it. And the the two, the two products that I mean, it's their only two products, but it's the two ones that I've used all these years is the Happy Endings Compost Tea Mix and the Ocean Bounty Flowering Mix. So um, for for anybody who wants to look into that, and you can get that stuff on Amazon and their website. So all right, so moving right along. So. So we're coming up here to the end of this like huge first set and 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 the the compost we're going to talk about next number 6 this is actually going to set us up for set 2 because we're going to talk about this variety of compost um during most of probably all of set 2 so so um so just just set us up there Layton and then and then I'll take us to commercial so the sixth category is the stuff that you sent me, man, like, like I had a problem in my, you know, I, I know you're a compost expert. You consult for all these people. You got this crazy ass lab in your, in your garage and another one in Connecticut. Like, like I know you're like mad scientist compost guy, but like I had not actually ever seen like what you make, right? Like I've always, I've always appreciated you for our, our friendship and conversation, but, I, but I, I, you know, I never seen any of your compost. And so, um, so I had a fungus snap problem, which we'll talk more about in the third set, but you're all like, Hey man, let me, let me send you something to fix that. And, and you, you shipped me up, um, uh, uh, two different bags of this compost, which was unlike any other compost that I had ever come across. Um, it was, you know, small granular and it was rich and it smelled so good. I wanted to eat it. And it, it like, I mean, not to sound too woo woo. I, I feel like I felt it alive. I felt like I was getting vibes off of it. Like when I opened it, like I was, you know, I got like a hit of the smell and I'm like, whoa, what is this? This is very unlike anything else that I have been given as compost. And then, um, you know, you told me to just, uh, you know, um, uh, I think you had me brew it and, and then, and then I put it, put it on and it caused all of this like immediate biological change, which we're going to talk about more in set two. But this, after talking you with talking to you more about it, um, you explained to me why this kind of compost is in a category all of its own so so please explain what's different about this cat this category of compost that i had never even considered and and then so they set us up and then and then i'll take us to commercial okay so <clears throat> we'll get into the process in the next set but bottom line is it's a biological inoculant um, the foundation of it is palm so particulate organic matter so you you noticed that really fine particulate, mm -hmm. but you also noticed it was super fluffy. And that's the key to this. Uh, that fluffiness allows for gas exchange. Um, it allows the for heavy colonization of, of you know, <laughs> 
very, very diverse biology um, in a way that uh, does not force competition. So not everybody's fighting for the same resource. They're just there in suspension um, just to be woken up and, and by you, uh, whether you're brewing them or top dressing with them. Um, so basically it's look at it like condominiums. I'm building, you know, every one of those tiny little particulate is a giant condominium, a city full of all different types of biology um, that are there um, basically just waiting to be um, provided with the environment that they can really, um, you know, expand in and, and thrive in. So that's why that's different. And <clears throat> we'll get into the ingredients in the process uh, in the next set. Hit the hit hit the key thing for me though, which is um, the fact that it's it's not a thermal compost. No, <clears throat> it is not, and and in most ways it would be considered uh, immature. And the reason um, it would be considered immature is because when I take this start product, which is the the biological compost that I made, uh, non thermophilic, we call it cold composting. Um, I screen it. Uh, numerous times. Um, so I'm screening out the big stuff. Um, I'm using forces to break off all of the organisms, the hemic and fulvic acids, um, to break down the little pieces that are tend to be clumped together or, or sheared off of a bigger piece of organic matter. So it's those mechanical processes and then the screening that allows me to get that poem those fine little particulates um, and suspend them in a solution so that they can be colonized by all the different diverse bacteria and biology that I've put into play. And this idea that it's a cold compost, I haven't heard that term before. I like it. Um, you know, when we talked about this earlier in the week, it was interesting because you said, you know, all of the other compost, all right, probably not the vermiculture, but but most of the other composts that we have talked about today, they have all been heated to like, what, 165 or something because because mm -hmm. people are trying to, you know, kill the seeds and, you know, make it make it a little more inert. Um, but but really, that's also killing all the microbes, which is really what what so many of us uh, now natural farmers are chasing after. And it really astonished me that, you know, to realize that I'm always thinking about um, using my compost teas because I want to pour microbes into my soil to help buoy the rhizosphere. But really, um, if it's a thermal compost, it means that like that stuff's like m mostly been wiped out already versus this cold compost where even though we'll talk more about this in a second, it sounds like it's dangerous because it's all like wild in there. Like what I imagine I'm doing with a thermal compost tea really is happening at a much smaller level than if I were to use a cold compost tea. Correct. And the one thing you're missing too is the most important reason to go thermophilic is to kill pathogens. Oh. All right, so they kill weed seeds. Yes, um, that's a, a byproduct of of the process. But the goal is to um, knock back all of the potential pathogens. Uh, remember, a lot of a lot of compost is based on manures, right? High end um, anaerobic digestion, 
which is the other piece that we did talk about. Um, but the thermophilic component is to basically uh, provide the same thing as an anaerobic digestion. You're killing everything um, and then starting over, starting fresh. And so, yeah, that's that's why I went to um, cold composting was because I could not get the the biological um, diversity that I was looking for when I went thermophilic. But again, I don't use any manures. I don't use any food waste. I use purely vegan compost. So this is just plants. Right on. All right. So we will dig into that uh, even more uh, for set two. And uh, and if you're still with us, uh, uh, I appreciate you. This is this is a solid hour first set, which is the longest first set I've ever had. Um, but um, I care very much about this topic, and um, and there's no way that I wanted to. You know, do this topic short shrift, right? Like if we're going to do it, let's freaking do it. And, and so if you're still here with us and you're, you're caring about all this, like you're our kind of people. And uh, I really appreciate that you're here. So, um, we're going to go ahead and take a short break and be right back. Um, you're listening to Shaping Fire and my guest today is soil biologist Leighton Morrison. And you know, without these advertisers, Shaping Fire would not happen. So please do support them and let you let them know you heard about them on Shaping Fire. Once you've discovered the benefits of using cannabis, it's a very small step to start making your own edibles, gummies, lotions, tinctures, and concentrated oils at home. Magical Butter has been helping cannabis consumers become self-sufficient for over a decade. With the easy-to-use Magical Butter Countertop Botanical Extractor, you can create high-quality cannabis products to your exact specifications at a fraction of the cost of store-bought edibles. I talk a lot on this show about the importance of home growing so you don't have to rely on others to feel healthy. Well, the Magical Butter Machine can empower your personal health by putting you in control of how you use cannabis in your daily life. I've been making my own butters and oils on the stove for years, and I much prefer the ease of using the Magical Butter Machine. I just set it and walk away. With the simple touch of a button, the Magical Butter Machine grinds, heats, stirs, and steeps your herbal extract all at the correct time interval and temperature for the perfect infusion every time. As a result, you achieve your desired infusion easily, safely, and consistently. Check out the Magical Butter Instagram to see the machine in action. And don't feel like you have to go it alone. There is a huge community on Facebook called Magical Butter Users United, sharing recipes and best practices so you can learn at your own pace from others who are already doing it successfully. Now is the time to get your own Magical Butter machine and save money while enjoying cannabis. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps, to get 10% off. Visit MagicalButter.com today. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. 
and it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O dot com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynamico on Amazon or Dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the United States from coast to coast. With their global network of grower support, Copert can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T dot com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check their Instagram at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. And my guest today is soil biologist Leighton Morrison. So here we are at set two. During set one, we looked at a wide variety of the things that we come in contact with that is labeled compost. And we did our best to make sense of them. And we found ourselves at the end with, um, you know, focusing on the kind of compost that, that I think that I'm usually looking for. Um, you know, you know, much of the other types, the, you know, the curated compost and the vermiculture compost and the nutrient compost, like, like, like all of that stuff is are things that I use in my garden, but most of the time, 
myself as a natural farmer interested in regenerative um, you know, cultivation and feeding the rhizosphere, um, I'm really wanting to, you know, feed and add microbe life. I want to add biology. And, um, and, and so we, we ended the first set talking about, um, a cold compost that have not been heated we, that where all the biology is still alive. And so in this set, we're going to talk, um, a bit about the difference, um, between that and the, and the other composts and the biology. And also I'm very interested in, um, you know, if, if one of the reasons we heat thermal compost is to get rid of the pathogens, that makes this unheated microbe inoculant, this cold compost, sound like wild, like the wild west. So, 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 so let, let's just start um, with the difference. You know, you, you have spoken on this on this show before uh, uh, briefly about the difference between soil science and soil biology. And, um, you know, I, I, my, you know, back of the envelope is just like soil sciences, nutrition and minerals and soil biology is living stuff. But, but honestly, we haven't gone into it, you know, in depth so far. So I could, I could have it wrong. So, so why don't we start there and then we can start to hang the rest of the conversation on that, um, Leighton. All right. That sounds good. And, you know, Thank you again, Shango, for doing this because we're we're having a conversation that has needed to happen for many years now about you know whether it's a compost is should be called compost or whether it needs other names and and you know just recently in the last couple of years I've seen you know like particulate organic matter and mineral associated organic matter come about as as words that are provide value. Um, and, and this next part, which is also equally as important is, is the understanding that soil is actually three components. It is the physical sand, silt, clay, and organic matter and their relationship, which is very important. Second is soil chemistry. And third is soil biology. Soil science base everything on two of those three pieces, which is the physical and the chemical. And this is due to um, economic-based systems. And like, um, and like human reductionism, right? We always, we always value life last, right? Seems to be the way, Shango. Really seems to be the way. Especially if you look at where we are as a species at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. All right. But basically, soil science is, is chemistry heavy. Um, everything has been based on building fertilizers to grow more crops, to feed more people, regardless of nutritional value, which makes no sense to me. Um, the only real way to achieve nutrient-dense food is through biology. It's that critical uh, biogeochemical interactions that allow that plant to pull up these nutrients um, and, and, and regulate itself as to what it wants instead of being force-fed um, NPK. So that is why there's this huge disconnect in soil science versus soil biology um, until Dr. Lane Ingham made the world aware that there is life under their feet. Uh, people didn't even consider soil biology as, as a real thing. And so in many ways, she's pioneered the eye opening of, of the masses to the fact that there is more uh, going on in the soil than just physical and chemical. 
um, that there's this critical bridge called biological uh, that allows the chemistry to flow in and out of the physical components and into the plant directly. So that's that's an important conversation that needs to happen is that, you know, the soil science world has got to uh, knock down the ivory towers of just chemistry and really start to open up to this uh, interdisciplinary uh, mode of operation um, that will unlock these really important um, secrets. I sent you a paper recently, which I'm sure you're going to enjoy reading time and time again, because there's just so much information in that, um, that basically kind of explains that this, this organic matter, we're not going to call it compost anymore. It's organic matter. It's just in different phases of decomposition. Um, provide this incredibly powerful um, home, um, city, uh, globe. Cons consider it a planet. That, that aggregate is a planet. And inside that planet is all of this magic that's going on that, that's protecting itself. It's evolving. Um, it's it's producing uh, more inoculant for for more expansion for for better soil structure to to accept moisture. The more moisture that goes in that gets held in those aggregates, the more densely populated they can become. The more they can clean the water. The more they can provide foods for other organisms. So it's really the the foundation of everything is that biogeochemical processes that are occurring within inside that aggregate. Now, is that aggregate uh, poem or moem? Well, <laughs> that's the thing is when you get into mineral-associated organic matter, you get into a environment where you're compacted now. You're, you're, you don't have the gas or air exchange, I should say. Um, you don't have the CO2 leaving and the oxygen or the, the air, atmospheric air coming down. You, you don't have the, the same um, ability to, to aggregate. Um, that's why it's so much more stable than poem. Um, so I'm sorry, I got way off track there, but I think, I think that's important to really differentiate the difference between, um, these phases of, of decomposition. Sure. I'll bring you back in. Uh, but, but since you mentioned the paper that you sent me yesterday, we might as well plug it. And, um, uh, I will also have a link to it on the, uh, page for this episode on the shaping fire website. Um, but the, but the, but the, 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 the science paper, which was a fantastic read last night is called will fungi solve the carbon dilemma. And it's by, by uh, S. Emilia Hanula and Ellie Morian. Um, anyway, it's 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 a fascinating read, and um, um, and we'll be talking more about the 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 fungal aspects of this paper, you know, towards towards the latter half of this set, but. Um, what you're saying, Leighton, is is spelled out very specifically. Uh, they're talking about having an increase in soil biology, especially with fungal-heavy compost, um, creating all of these soil opportunities that are not available to the soil when not using biologically and fungally active um agricultural soils so so anyway that's that's the paper and so we'll, we'll get back on topic here so 
Um, so we are talking about the difference between uh, the soil science and the soil biology, and uh, and how most of uh, most of compost and and everything is looking at the at the chemistry and the physicality of the soil and not the biology. Um, I would like you to uh, speak to this idea of the the. Um, the, the the variety of biology right because npk is so reductionist and 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 most of us in cannabis were were brought up thinking you know hit our npk numbers feed the plant or you know if we came from the bottle force feed the plant and 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 what we are trying to tease out is that um you know the compost which is 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 the central the, the focus of our topic we want it to be as biologically active as possible and and the way for us to do that is to not cook it like a thermal compost so I would like you to speak to what that uh, process is like to produce a compost that has not been cooked because creating a cooked thermal compost is the only thing that I've ever heard of. So again, let's not call it compost. Let's call it organic matter. Fair enough. Right. And organic matter is probably the largest uh, source of nutritional holding capacity. All right, this is where biology meets chemistry. So w- most people understand what a cation exchange site is or cation exchange capacity. So that capacity is the ability for nutrient solution to be held on the bond site so that it's not mobile and therefore safe and secure for later harvest by the plant and the biology. All right, so that's that's really important to understand. Um, so that being said, uh, trying to reel it back into <clears throat> understanding the thermophilic process of breaking down organic matter, um, I think that um, the best the best way to approach it is is to understand that when you get over one hundred and twenty degrees. Um, you are losing biological diversity. When you hit 130 degrees, you have lost pretty much everything. It's now just thermal fights that are living in that organic matter or on that organic matter, I should say. Um, So that's why if your goal is to achieve a biological compost, you have to be below 120 degrees. Now, Back in the day when I was studying under Lane, there was always this issue of, well, you know, you can bring in pathogens and you can cause, you know, plant problems, uh, you know, uh, deficiencies and and all of these other things because you've brought something in from somewhere else and you've applied it uh, perhaps inappropriately um, onto uh, into this pot or onto this plant. And my argument's always been that um, diversity will out-compete um, reductionist. So if I've reduced this down to just thermal fights, the potential for a pathogenic outbreak is way greater than if I had a very biologically diverse compost system. 
Um, this was one of, of many <laughs> conversations that Elaine and I agreed to disagree about was the fact that for her, um, she has a, uh, an incredible reputation, a celebrity status. Um, so she has to be very guarded about what she says because people will inappropriately uh, be morons <laughs> and, and use more uh, because a little is good. Oh, more is better. Well, that's how you get into these problems with pathogen uh, cross-contamination, um, with deficient nutrient deficient issues, um, because what happens is you you've created a newt lock or you've created a pathogenic inoculation. So that's why it's critical that that she maintains that the only way to make safe compost is to do it thermophilically. And I, and I agree with her because humans are just humans. They they tend to do stuff without really thinking first, and and you know making sure that they are. Um, crossing the T's and dotting the I's uh, responsibly. Um, it tends to be, oh, whatever's easy and quickest for me is what I'm going to do. And that's not the appropriate approach when you're dealing with um, these critical types of uh, biological exposures. Um, there's there's some composts that I've made that are, are definitely uh, potentially very dangerous to play with because if I have underlying health issues and I'm playing with pseudomonobacteria, the potential for me to actually make myself very sick is, is, is real. Um, I think that in many ways I've, I've benefited from my work playing with anaerobic um, fish manure um, because I early on was getting exposed to this stuff and like you said earlier if you get that stuff on you it, it's days <laughs> before you don't stink anymore so there's there's you know some serious issues to it and but i learned very quickly um i never got violently sick um i definitely uh you know had some stomach issues you know early on when i was playing with this stuff because i didn't completely understand um about the difference between anaerobic digestion and and aerobic um so aerobic microbes um, versus anaerobic microbes and and the potential for uh, them to make us very sick so that being said um let's let's delve into what is a cold compost versus a thermophilic um in a cold composting situation um the sweet spot for massive protozoa production and the reason i'm using protozoa is because they're the ones that are doing all of or the vast majority of nutrient cycling in other words the nutrient cycling is that this bacteria has all this good stuff locked up in it including nitrogen and this protozoa wants to eat that bacteria because it wants the carbon to make itself grow and get bigger. doesn't want the nitrogen. doesn't care about what's in the pantry of that bacteria. So it consumes that and it poops out pure nitrogen and all of these other elements in a plant-available form. And that's critical. Um, in pretty much all soil systems that I look at, the number one issue is the lack of protozoa. That would be the flagellates and the amoeba. Those are the aerobic ones. The anaerobic ones are the ciliates, and then you get some facultatives, which we're not going to get into that. It's just too deep. But bottom line is the sweet spot is 85 degrees and 70% 
uh, moisture content. So when you squeeze the stuff, you will get water drops forming in between your fingers. That tells you that it's above 50%. If you get no moisture, you're about 50%. If you get drops, now you're pushing into the 60, 70s, and 80% moisture. That's the sweet spot for, for protozoan production. Um, it is also generally uh, a sweet spot for what I want to call fungal sporulation and germination. Um, in the soil system itself, um, plants don't like it uh, that humid or that, that high of moisture. That's when you get into root rots and you get into um, other disease-causing uh, potential pathogens. Whereas <clears throat> in a compost pile, it's a different animal. Now, we're not dealing with plant life yet. We're just dealing with protozoan production. And when I'm applying um, this, well, I probably need to go through the process of, of how I do it. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking these vegan um, composts. So it's just plants, no manures, greens and browns. Uh, the ratio is, is always 66% browns, 33.5% uh, greens. Um, and you are using a tremendous amount of water to, to get that to begin what I call the thermophilic rise. We never want to get to the thermophilic process. That's 130. We've got to keep it below 120. I generally tell people to keep it below 115. If I get to 115, I got to flip it. As a matter of fact, I got to flip a pile this afternoon because I'm at 115 right now. That being said, <clears throat> i let the temperature go up to a certain point, uh, 115 is max, and then I flip it. If it doesn't get to 115, then I never flip it. Um, I just let it do its thing, and I watch it until it starts to come down, not quite to ambient. Ambient would be the, the temperature outside environment. So today it's 75, as always, and sunny. So when it's 75 degrees, then I know it's gone through the biological process or the thermophilic rise that, that never got to, to thermophilic phase. Um, so I, I brought it up, but I kept it in the mesophilic. Now, that's considered immature compost because it's not really well broken down. So how do I break it down at that point? Well, that's where I get into these mechanical forces. I use agitation, aeration, vibration, uh, spin, so gravity. Um, all of these things to to get that immature compost to harvest the, the things that I'm looking for, which is the biology and, and the smallest bits poem, particulate organic matter that I can get through that process. And then whatever's left goes right back into the compost pile again. So are, so are, you, descri are you describing mechanical processes that you um, uh, submit the Immature compost. The immature organic material to um, that replaces what is normally done by breaking down with thermals. Or, or, or time. Or time. Because again, right, you can, you can stack up a, a pile of chips uh, or, or any organic matter for that matter matter <laughs> any organic matter for that matter <laughs> <laughs> um, and it will 
go through a decomposition phase. Um, whether it gets hot, whether it goes thermophilic or not, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't know about you, but growing up in New England, we had to rake leaves every fall, and we would take those leaves and dump them over at the edge of the swamp. And that pile would be like five feet tall, and me and my sisters would jump in it. We'd have a blast throwing leaves and you know running down the hill and fast as we can trying to dive into the pile. Mm -hmm. But come spring, that pile was gone. It was just this low lump of, of what was left of, we call it leaf mold nowadays, but just what was left of all of those leaves. So that went through a breakdown process, but it never got hot. It never, we never saw those piles steaming. So there was no major heat exchange, but there was definitely some minor heat exchange in order for that to break down. When you add the water, the um, the the eighty five degrees and seventy percent moisture that's a that's a lot of moisture. Um, uh, is the water involved because it's there to keep the temperature from spiking? I think you called it a thermophilic rise. I'm not very familiar with that. I'd like to know what happens during the thermophilic rise and what's what what's ha like why why so much water? So the water. Um is broken into H2O, all right? So we have oxygen and we have hydrogen. There are a lot of uh, bacterial constituents that, that thrive on hydrogen. So they consume hydrogen as a fuel source to break apart the nitrogen and the organi organic mm. matter, or the carbon off of the organic matter, all right? So... There are also other forms of bacteria that consume the oxygen to do their part in breaking the nitrogen and the carbon off of each other. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So water's the food. Water's life, right? There's no joke to that. Water is life. Without it, nothing ceases <laughs> to exist. So that water is just a fuel source. It has nothing to do with 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 regulating temperatures. Not, we're not putting out the fire. We're just providing a food source for the biology to do their part in breaking the nitrogen and the carbon off of each other. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, let's see, I'm going to try to do a summarization to this point. So, so what we're trying to do with the cold compost is that um, we are going to, A, use only plant matter so we don't have to worry as much about pathogens like E. coli. And then we're not going to let the temperature go above 85 degrees, but especially 120, but 85 is really our, our goal. Um, so that the, the, the pile, um, gets warm naturally from the breaking down, but it doesn't get hot enough to kill our microbes off. And we can get away with that because we're only using plant material instead of um, animal material, which can cause the pathogens. And, and then we are also going to do uh, mechanical processes to this organic material that will further break it down uh, to create more of these biological opportunities in the soil for life. Um, 
which also uh, breaks down the compost in ways, some of, the, some of the ways that we would get from a thermal version as well. So we're, we're choosing to not use the heat of a thermophilic compost, and instead we are using um, a safer inputs and also massaging the soil in ways that opens up opportunities. And so we have what is essentially, yes, a riskier, or I love what you said earlier, a dangerous compost, um, but we have decreased that risk by not using animal products in there, and we are making it more diverse and more effective by doing some of these mechanical preparations too. Yes, and I think the other thing is that you missed is seeds, right? Mm. When I when I harvest greens and browns, and I harvest greens and browns, um, I don't harvest plants that I've gone to seed because I don't want the seed in my compost. What I want is flowers, but I don't want the seed pods. So that's another piece of this that's important. And the other one, which we're missing on, is diversity. Like I, I collect like every type of green I can find, every type of brown I can find. Um, and then I use those proportionally, uh, volume, not by weight, to make my pile. And the reason it's so important to get the diversity is because of endophytic biology. It's a little bit deep, but we got to go there. All right. So the endophytes that live inside those green leaves and in luckily the browns, we just did the Jeff Lowenfels show on uh, bacterial endophytes. So anybody who just listened to that show is already going to be up to speed on this. So so folks who want to hear more about this, go back and listen to the show about the new Jeff Lowenfels book. With that, please continue. All right. So, but there's both endophytic bacteria and there's endophytic fungi that live inside the plant itself. So when that leaf um, is fall comes and it, it dries out and falls to the ground, if it lands on the ground, it's going to release um, saprobes. Uh, this is a type of fungi that decomposes organic matter, but it's also going to release decomposing bacteria. Um, say it lands in the water. Well, it's now going to become aquatic microorganisms. Now, you've heard me talk about the great mass migrations uh, before the great human expansions. And this here, again, is a subject that is um, somewhat debating or debatable that, that there is microbes that live can live both terrestrial and aquatic. I'm a firm believer of it, but there's plenty of people out there that would say I'm, I'm batshit crazy on this. But that being said, I have proven it. Uh, to myself many, many times in the products that I've done, um, one of the key things that I focus on is diatoms. Um, those are uh, a specific organism that lives, generally speaking, in aquatic environments, and it produces or they produce oxygen via two different sources. <laughs> That's why they're so powerful. One is through photosynthesis, and the other is through um, Consuming biology, consuming bacteria, consuming nutrients that are, are, are in the water system, and then using their own internal um, biological factories to take that nutrient out of the water and build their shells and build build their uh, 
or I should say divide and continue to expand as a population. So I've applied, I've applied diatom based, um, well, it's one of my ingredients. It's called fish brew for lack of better ways. It just, let's get right after it. So fish brew, uh, the, the, farm on Cape Cod has freshwater diatoms like I've never seen before. And I got so excited when I found this stuff because diatoms are a great indicator. Like you, I can apply uh, diatoms to your soil and I can come back next year, the year after, the year after, the year after, and I'll be able to find them. Um, if they're healthy, they will have a chloroplast and I can see the, their nucleus and their other, you know, um, oregonellos. Um, if they're not healthy, if they're dead, they're just an empty shell made of silica and silica has a tendency to last, uh, quite a while in the soil. So th there's a great indication that I can take aquatic organisms and put them in a terrestrial environment and they will survive. Um, so that being said, when I take my, um, low temp compost and I throw it into, uh, a situation where I'm using agitation, centrifugal force, aeration, soft collision, and I'm breaking off all of these pieces of, of what I want to call pre-digested organic matter. So it's in the digestion process, but it hasn't been completely digested into uh, like a palm or a mom. Um, it, there's still very much, uh, a lot of organic matter that has not gone through any kind of decomposition. So now I've, I've taken that I've, I've, I've banged it against each other. I've pulled off all of the little bits that have decomposed. Um, and I've, I've done this in a, in an aqueous environment with fish brew and, and some worm castings. So now all of a sudden I have all of this suspended stuff, uh, in the water column. Uh, it looks like chocolate water. So it's very, very uh, rich with humic acids, which we've talked about as, as the biological superfood. I've introduced all these microbes from, from fish brew, um, which is like incredible if you look at the, the DNA sequences of what they've done. Uh, it's called meta, meta barcoding, where you're getting a general idea of who's present or who's been there, um, which gets deeper into horizontal gene transfer, which we can't go there today. <laughs> But that being said is now I have all of this diversity. I have all the endophytes from, from the, the decomposed organic matter. I have all of these uh, biological constituents that came in on the fish brew. And then I have all of these secondary and tertiary metabolites from the digestion of the worms um, that is called worm castings. So this, in many ways, you know, when I started this journey, I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. But now, 14, 15 years later, I'm really seeing, like, that was, like, uh, what do you call it? Intuition, instinct drove me down that path of, well, everyone talks about how great worm castings are. I should add some of those. Oh, and I know how good fish manure is because every time I play with it and I appropriately aerobically stabilize it and I pour it on plants, man, do those plants explode. And I also know the value of compost. And, and the fact that it brings in these, these superfoods like humic and fulvic acids, as well as all these uh, secondary and tertiary metabolites that, that are happening during the decomposition phase. So, bam, there's a, there's a 
grand slam home run for you by adding all these things together, using mechanical forces to separate them, and then using uh, what I call dewatering techniques, which is through vibration, vibrating the organic matter to shed all of the liquid off of it. Um, now I have a biological super sauce, <laughs> secret <laughs> sauce, whatever you want to call it. Now, if I want to make that shelf stable, then I have to press it. So I take the dewatering to another level and then I take that and fluff it up. And that's what you got was, was that inoculated poem that's easy to work with just put it in a glass of water stir it up as a matter of fact uh on the podcast a couple weeks back i actually drank some i put some (laughs) 11 year old product in a glass of water stirred it up and drank it on camera because i've been telling people that i I eat this shit all the time every time i work with it i get it in my mouth my ears it's always my fingernails are always dirty so i'm I'm just constantly being inoculated with this stuff (laughs) so i proved that hey it's not going to hurt you. It's actually really super beneficial to your your entire digestive tract because you're putting in microbes that aren't there or weren't there or haven't been there for a long time that are doing, again, all these crazy biogeochemical reactions that we have only begun to discuss because science is moving into an interdisciplinary mode because the reductionist side of it has realized we can't just keep reducing everything down to nothing and then not talk to anybody about how does this affect their work or how does this affect that processor. So it, it's an interesting time to be alive as these things are happening, but we don't have the technology yet to really delve down what those processes are and why they're so important and how they are affecting everything around them. So again, if if you don't have the technology, but you have the know-how, well, then that's the key to the whole thing is, all right, I, I don't know why it works, but I know it does work. So I'm going to keep doing it. And, and so- that's... Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So, so, um, you know, uh, bringing this home a little bit to, uh, like how it can be used by the cultivator, um, we, it, it sounds like this cold compost inoculant does all of the things that we think a thermal compost will do uh, the you know we 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 use a thermal compost as an amendment we use a thermal compost as a as a top dress we use a thermal compost to make compost tea why do we do that because we want to add um you know life vibrance uh to our plants but we know because they've been cooked so hot because you know that's a smart thing to do when there's pathogens um that that it's it's actually not as vibrant with life as as we would hope it would be um, in our gardens. And so what we've done with this is we have um, used a lower temperature and we have gathered our microbes and and protozoa and other biology. We have we've gone through the effort to bring them together from these three different directions and and we are actually creating a air quotes compost, which is essentially organic matter, that is actually what we think of when we think of compost, but the common form of compost that we get, which is thermal, actually is not 
supercharged the way we really want it to be. And so this cold organic matter because of the care we've put into it is actually what we idealize about compost. Yeah. Biomimicry, right? Mm. We talk about biomimicry all the time. I've had arguments with people that say there's no such thing as, as compost in nature. And I'm like, no, you're wrong. Look at every time there's a flood, that's all piled up. All the sticks and brush and, and algae from the bottom of the river is piled up. And that's float sam. That's a compost pile. Underneath the forest, <laughs> that's a compost pile. That's just a giant compost pile. Dead animals, dead sticks, leaves, you know, plants that have come in and gone out. Um, they're all creating compost. Now, that compost doesn't heat up in the forest floor, nor does it the float sam, the pile that's you know left by the side of the river. Those don't heat up. Those are those would be considered cold compost. Do they heat up to some degree? Oh, I'm sure in in pockets of it when it's really dense and, and compressed, that's going to heat up. But is it going to go thermophilic? No, it's not. It's not going to. It's not going to ever get to a position where it could combust. And that is the end of the thermophilic phase if you let it run wild is combustion is when the microbes start to produce alcohol and, and then it and then it can you know self-combust so you know again thermophytes are are important to understand and and the getting your head wrapped around the fact that you do not want to cross-contaminate you do not want to deal with pathogens you do not want to deal with seeds thermophilic process is a great way to bypass that potential problem all right so um i want to go back to talking about the the actual physical structure of good compost uh during the third set we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about your actual manufacturing techniques all these ways that you massage it but um you um you know, you made a special point to talk about, um, you're breaking the pieces down to a small size using these other methods that we're going to talk about. But you were very specific that the reason that you're doing it is to make these organic matter grains have lots of housing and community opportunities for the microbes and protozoa and amoeba and other denizens of the rise sphere right so mm -hmm. so talk a little bit that about that would you about the the actual physical structure of good compost so this goes back to poem particulate organic matter and moem mineral associated organic matter mineral associated organic matter is going to be very dense kind of like um worm castings except for even more dense so think of bulk density how much something weighs by volume um, and those weights are going to be indicators of how long that material, that organic matter is going to last in the soil system, as well as how quickly it will release its nutrient. So poem will last two to three months in an organic system. Uh, moem um, will last two to three years. So there's a big difference. What do you mean last? What does last mean? So um, you throw a um, poem down on, a, on an orchard. and three months, it's going to be gone. It's going to be decomposed by all of the biology, not the thermophytes, but the other decomposers, whether that's fungi or bacteria. 
but it's going to be it's going to go away it's going to have been used up as a nutrient for the plants that you've applied it to does that make sense yep i do okay so again the the moam is going to last years and the poem's going to last months so what that tells me is that if i colonize that palm and i apply it then what's going to happen is we're going to have a fast nutrient release within within three months it's all going to be gone it's going to be consumed and released plant available or at least stored in the in the biology and the bacteria um whereas moam um you're not going to get that fast release you're going to get a really really slow release which is good for soil structure um because you want you want concrete foundations you don't want to build your your palace on bamboo stilts right but if i'm trying to get uh inoculation I want to get those microbes that that have set up shop and and in these condominiums on on this poem then the best way to do it is use the poem because i know it's going to have released all of that biology into the soil relatively quickly and to be honest with you um moam is so dense the bulk density is so great that that you again you don't have the ability for um you know mass colonization you it's too dense it doesn't let the oxygen in to feed the bacteria that in turn are are providing food sources for the protozoa and it gets complex but i i think i explained it okay there yeah and so um the you want to have these these small fluffy um you know, granular, I, I guess it's probably the outside of them are also, we don't want anything like smooth. Um, so it creates all these like small micro hotels for all of yes. these microbes. That is essentially it, the point. Exactly. Dude. Like when, remember when we were smashing up rocks? <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I remember smashing up rocks to make my, uh, to make my regen tent with the, with the soil horizons. Oh my God. Yep. Yep. So no smooth surfaces. Yeah. It was, it, it, think of it like, <clears throat> um, if you polish something, um, it's very difficult for oxidization for, uh, you know, any kind of mechanical, um, force to to break it down so that polish is 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 protection and and yes you you want porous you want surface area as much as you possibly can get so things can get into the cracks and set up shop and and set up their biofilm and start to expand out but they can't do that on a smooth surface they're they're they don't have the benefit of of the protection on three sides they're they're basically exposed on 180 degrees on a polished surface where if they're in a little crack or a crevice there's a very small exposure to to the outside environment all right that makes sense Uh, especially with the word porous that that gives me the picture i'm looking for so um so the last thing i want to talk about here in set two is um uh what is essentially the point of the of the paper we we referred to earlier which is talking about how, you know, in this cold compost that we are, are creating, 
we want to have there be a variety of fungals there. Um, and so, like, of course, there is, you know, you know basic fungals that, that we're all familiar with, with, like mycelium, but this paper goes into uh, depth that there is a wide variety of different fungal participants that the more of them we have, the more combination of fungals and bacterias and nutrients, it, it, it becomes this kind of wild mix and match where it like a buffet that, that, um, like everybody can get what they need, but you know, I've never really heard anybody talk too much about the variety of, of fungals, except for like, oh, do you want to make a, you know, bacteria dominant um, compost tea or do you want to make a fungal dominant compost tea? That's about as far as I generally hear it. So would you please address um, the, the, the fungals in the cold compost, uh, their importance and... Um, you know, as much as you can tell us, like, what they're doing there. Okay, so you hit on a couple of really important parts. Um, first one is IMO, right? Everybody's like, IMO, IMO, and IMO is the foundation of natural farming. What is IMO? Well, I'll be honest with you, it's yeasts. It's not saprophytic fungi. It's basically the precursor, the 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 successionary system that has to be in place in order for saprobes to do their work, to come out, to have an environment where they can survive. So it goes back along the same understanding principles of soil succession. So you start with a very low F to B ratio, swamp, uh, non-associated uh, plants, uh, more bacterially dominant and then you move all the way up into the conifers, which are very fungally dominant and and wide variety of different uh, constituents that are in play. So in order to build that um, foundation or that roadway so that you can bring in the groups of uh, following the successionary groups into play, <clears throat> you need those yeasts. You need those um, lower successionary fungal uh, life forms i'm going to use that term because there are so much we don't know so little in that paper um they talked about knowing about 0.01 percent about what the fuck is really going on in these biological when i read that i actually screenshot it and circled it and sent it to some of my compost friends i'm like do you know we only know what 0.01 percent of of the microbes even are like I, I i was astonished to realize that we know almost nothing about what's in our soil uh-huh and and then worse yet uh the interactions and those interactions are the key to the whole thing like like why does a thermophyte heat up? Why why is why is that getting out of control? Why is it because I put so much nitrogen in there that it, this pile's going to combust? Like, what is that biogeochemical process that's happening that's creating so much heat? It, it's it gets crazy. Um, so, you know, that being said, it, IMO works so great because it's putting all of the foods and and the successionary species that need to be present for some of these older, later succession species to come into play. So um, in, in understanding the compost process, in getting 
a fungally dominated compost, you've got to have those yeasts to, to even begin to get the saprobes to come in and do their thing. And we're not going to get into mycorrhizae, but we're going to stay with decomposing fungi for right now. And the yeasts um, and the molds, those are decomposers. So they're good guys to have to bring in. Think of prey predator. We talk about this all the time. So the yeasts and the molds are like deer. And the saprobes are like the saber-toothed tiger or, or the leopard that, that's going to come in and eat them. Um, so that's how you get that system to start functioning is by creating the prey so that the predators come in. Mm -hmm. um, so where are we going to get our predators from? Well, we get them from old rotten wood chips. Um, that's one of the major sources for getting um, decomposing saprobe fungi. Um, you call mycelium. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that mycelium is actually like a cord. It's filled with hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of different individual organisms that are all working together uh, like a internet superhighway. And that white coating on the outside, that is actually a protection uh, against oxidation so that when if that if that individual organism that individual saprobe actually got exposed to oxygen it would disintegrate or or exposed to uv it would it would disintegrate so that white coating is actually the basically think of it as the the, the wrapping around your electrical cord it's to prevent something from going catastrophically wrong and the 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 most interesting component of that is that when you find that you've, that mycelial cord in your year old two year old wood chips and you pick it up and all those other little pieces of of organic matter are hanging on like a web underneath it now you know you've got uh, many many different later successionary species of saprobes so that's why again if you if you take the time to actually harvest these chips that are loaded with mycelium and you heat it up over 120 you just wasted all your time mm -hmm. you, you killed everything so that's why it's so important that you keep this at a lower temperature so that they will colonize your organic matter so that when you go to actually strip it or use it they have gone through a sporulation phase where they have uh, gotten to a point where they grew out a ton of spores or clubs or feet depending on you know which camp you want to talk about as far as you know what the different um, sexual methods that this fungi do to produce their offspring so I want to ask you about these different sources for um, these mycelium, these varieties of fungals, because we, we know we want them, and we know we want a, a, as you know as wide of a variety as we can, and we know that the the these you know using IMO indigenous microorganisms that's like a uh, that's a, a simple low level version that will evolve some fungals, which is great, but then we're also going to throw. Uh, uh, wood chips into our our pile because we want to capture these hundreds if not thousands of varieties of fungals i'm guessing though that um we probably want to 
pull our fungals from a couple different sources. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, our IMO box is fantastic. Uh, our, our wood chips, that's fabulous. What are a couple other places that I want to hunt for wild crafting these fungals to bring it back and put it in my pile so I can have it be not only fungally dominant, but hella diverse fungally dominant. All right. So let's, let's clean up, uh, the Achilles heel of IMO. So it is taught and most people understand or believe that that IMO collection, IMO one is going to have all of the fungal constituents that you're looking for. It does not. It only has the foundation, the yeasts. And yeah, it's probably got some spores, but it's not nearly as diverse as one would think. Uh, generally, you see the, the microscope slides people post on Instagram. Those are called pin molds. Um, they're very important uh, foundational creatures for succession to occur. So you're producing a shit ton of pin molds, but when you introduce IMO3, which again is going to be uh, uh, very pin mold heavy, and you introduce that into a IMO4, which is when you blend it with soil, that's when you're really going to get your fungal colonization. That's when you're going to get your saprobes, your, your more later succession fungi to come into play because there's the food there for them, mm -hmm. right? There's all those pin molds doing all their thing that are providing the foundation or the paving the highway for the saprobes to come into play. So if you're looking for, you know, uh, a slow version of of getting to a fungal dominance, then yeah, that works great. But the problem is, if you don't have super healthy soil to blend with your IMO three, you're not going to get this the kind of fungally dominant compost that you're or organic matter that you're talking about. So back to how do I get? this into my low temp pile all right so number one is is finding the old one to two year old punky wood chips with the mycelium that is going to have tremendous diversity in it because that cord the thicker the cords are and the more long and webby the cords are the more different organisms you're, you're getting sap ropes um the other piece of this puzzle too is foods like what are fungal foods well, we know like steel cut oats. Um, there's a bunch of them and you, you can research this on your own. Um, but the other wonderful place to get sap robes are from leaf duff. So I talk about uh, prevailing wind, right? So everywhere you go, there's generally what we consider uh, the wind's direction that most days is going to be blowing in this direction. So basically you go to wherever um, there's a, a stone wall, a down tree, a, a creek or a depression and the leaves that blow across the yard will fall in a natural pile um, at, either behind that log or, you know, in that depression, there you go. There's an incredibly diverse, uh, indigenous saprobe fungi factory for you to add to your compost. So again, diversity, diversity, diversity. Leaves, chips, 
Uh, hay. Hay is another good one. Uh, not hay. Straw. Straw is, is already going to have decomposers attached to it. Um, and then, yeah, if you can add, add some humic acids, um, they're also a very good, again, biological superfood. They're good for both bacterial and fungal kingdoms. Um, then you're going to have uh, incredible success. And then there's one last piece of this puzzle. If you're in a place where you don't have access to these kinds of things, you can you go to your local mushroom producer and ask him for a spent mushroom block. You do not want mushroom compost because mushroom compost has gone thermophilic and they've been forced to kill all of the biology because that's what the USDA requires of anybody who's making commercial compost has to hit that temperature. Usually it's 150 three times over the course of X amount of days, depending on what state you're in. Um, so if you get mushroom compost, you're getting, you're, you're not getting organisms. If you get the mushroom block, now you're getting the organisms. Wow. That's really cool. I have access to many mushroom blocks, which I will now go get. Um, so I want to, I want to take this, this idea of wildcrafting it. I want to kind of say, I want to apply what you just said to my world and, and, and then everybody can kind of like do that in their own heads for where they live. So you're talking about uh, collecting these leaf collections that have naturally come together, um, you know, in indentations and along tree lines and stuff like that. And so, so if, if I'm wanting to do that kind of collection in my neighborhood and so that I have got the widest uh, diversity of fungals uh, in my cold compost as possible for me, I would, for example, my neighbor has got a long fence and so the leaves like we have all seen in like you know suburban neighborhoods even though i live way out um the the leaves blow against the fence and they collect at the bottom and so i can imagine going over there with a five gallon bucket and just like like you know smooshing all of these leaves together and filling that bucket up and so then okay great i've got a i've got a collection from this particular bioregion along my neighbor's fence um i also have got this um uh huge ass uh tree in my yard and um because it the the base of the tree kind of swells up because of the old root structure there's always a whole bunch of like magic like sitting in there too plus as as you've talked about before um there's all of these these yeasts these imos that actually kind of fall from these trees these these fungal dusts that fall from the trees so so all right i will collect all of the leaves that are at the bottom of the tree as well and i'm gonna get a little of this little fur fur bits and um uh fir fur bits and uh uh and some leaves and you know, I don't know, random organic matter debris. And so like, I'll fill a bucket with that. And then, and then maybe I would go over to the, um, the estuary here on the Island, go over to like Fern Cove, um, because there's all these different leaves that, that, uh, get collected in the brush that is along the along with salt water. So, so uh, maybe I'll get some salt spray and like a different variety of funguses because that's a yet another different environment. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I, I want to, I want 
want the environments to be different because these different biological environments are going to have different fungals. So now I've got like these three buckets full. And of course, this could be, you know, you could do as many as you want. But for this example, I got these three buckets and I'm now going to put those in the pile along with my IMO. And so I've got, I've got the, the very basic IMO yeasts and I've got the way more complex fungals from three different areas near where I live. Plus I've got all this higher end cool mycelial um, action going on and all the hangers on that you mentioned. And so boom, is, is that my ideal? Yes. Um, just a couple little points. So um, when you're collecting <clears throat> um, leaf duff, you really want to scrape back the dry leaves on the top and you want to get down into the layer where they're kind of slimy. Mm. Um, that's where the magic is, not in the, in the top layer that's dried out. The top layer that's dried out will then get covered by this year's crop of leaves and that'll press down and then become the wet, nasty, slimy um, underneath for for the following season, so you're again you're you're looking to get partially decomposed, naturally decomposed um, organic matter in the form of leaves that have started to break down. And I always encourage people to <clears throat> maybe this is the perfect place to use that commercial compost for six bucks is is to wildcraft responsibly and bring something in and leave that <clears throat> in place of what you've taken out um, so that way if you spread you know you've, you've taken out say six feet of of this uh you know top inch or two of this leaf mold um, you can then spread that commercial compost down and then cover it back up with the with the dried out leaves and you've not just totally disturbed or fucked nature by leaving a big scar. Oh, I love that. Um, and we've already talked about how, while it might not really work well for compost, it actually works great as a fertilizer. And right. so, and so we are, we are helping diversify that area right on. Yep. Wow. All yep. right. Cool. And then one other piece for mushroom blocks is that people have to understand that when they take that mushroom block, um, and they leave it, it it's going to get this, uh, liquid slimy stuff in the bag um, that's actually a biocide <clears throat> that's produced by the fungi to protect from bacterial infections and or yeast infections or anything else um, that fungi is doing everything it can to to build a fortress with the white cake around the outside edge but it's also releasing these uh biotoxins to fight off anybody that could possibly compete with them so what i generally tell people to do is take the bag and run it over with your car on soil so you smashed it and then just leave it in the bag so it gets nasty. It should get all different colors in it, um, but it shouldn't have any real liquid buildup um, because that's the biocide that you do not want to add to your compost pile because you will knock back your diversity. So the, dealing with mushroom blocks is a little bit more um, creative than, than one might think, but the longer you let those blocks dry out, um, and if it's raining, it's raining. doesn't matter. Just just don't allow that biocide to build up in the bag. <clears throat> Run it over. You know, you don't want to rip all the plastic off. Leave, leave the plastic on it until you're ready to actually 
introduce it into your compost pile. And then when you're going to introduce it into your compost pile, it's going to have this funky smell to it. And again, remember, our noses are there to protect us, to warn us from dangers. Um, so when you smell it, you're going to kind of like pull your head back and go, oh, that smells really funky. Yeah, that's okay. It's kind of like when you ferment things. It smells funky. Like, you're not going to want to eat this stuff, but when it has that funky smell to it, you know it's ready. It, it's going to um, be providing all kinds of secondary and tertiary metabolites for everything to kick in. The only part of that I want to tease at is the running over it with your car. I, I believe that the car is the only, our goal is to break up the cake so that the the white on the outside that is pro- providing the protective barrier for the cake um, gets destroyed. Right, like that disturbed. D- disturbed. Disturbed. Okay, so so like the cakes that I have come in contact with actually break up very easily in the bag by hand. And so it, w- it would be just as effective if I just take the bag and I hold it you know, well with my two hands and just you know, twist my hands in different directions and so break the exterior of the cake up a bit and then just go with that, right? There's, there, that's, that's the only goal of it, right? Uh, there is something to do with, with the pressure. I, I can't explain it, biogeochemical process. That, that's occurring, but I have noticed that when I do run it over uh, again, I'm not I'm not trying to break it up. I'm trying to just kind of like squish out any of the biocide and disturb that that outer coating, so that now the local indigenous biology can come into play and have fun with it as well. Because there's still a tremendous amount of resources uh, in in nutritional value that's li- locked up in that block. Um, that that fungi is trying to protect. So I want to I want to expose it to my local environment. So I'm getting all of my indigenous microorganisms to colonize it as well. So that's why I'm saying like just run it over. Uh, again, you don't want to tear the bag off of it. You just want to you just want to like pop it so that you know again air exchange can come in. The biocide gets squished out. Um, and then let it sit and get funky, man. The more funky it gets, the more diverse um, of of in uh, the more diverse of microorganisms that you'll get from your micro environment. Does that make sense? Yeah, I totally follow. All right, so we're going to go ahead and take another break, um, and then we're going to finish up with set three. We are going to talk um, uh, more about the, the mechanical massaging um, that Leighton does uh, to create these uh, community opportunities in the inoculant um, organic material, and then we're going to talk a little bit about ha- uh, how to actually... Um, to use this in your garden. Um, you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is soil biologist Leighton Morrison. For decades, Americans have enjoyed cannabis flowers in joints and bongs and bowls. And now, with the normalization of cannabis use increasing across the country, we have the opportunity to enjoy smoking cannabis luxuries that simply were not attainable before. North Coast, hand rolls, blunts, Cannons, rosin-infused donuts, and canagars available in the state of Michigan. North Coast focuses on flavor over everything else. 
Instead of growing their own flower, North Coast goes out into the cultivation community and creates relationships with the best growers working with the best new cannabis varieties available. Surely, heavy THC is a factor, but North Coast focuses on aroma, complex terpene profiles, and taste that continues throughout the entire smoking experience. The North Coast team curates flowers like others curate art. They seek out the best talent, build relationships, helps them take their product to the highest levels, and then buys their well-cured flowers in order to hand-roll them just for you. I really like their hand-blown glass tips. And North Coast has branched out beyond Canagars into rosin solventless THCA diamonds and exceptional hash rosin carts for on-the-go cannabis connoisseurs, too. North Coast provides you with attainable luxury, offering you an ultra-premium smoking experience at a price that seems reasonable and repeatable. To find out more about North Coast's line of cannabis products, visit their Instagram at northcoast.rolling. That's northcoast.rolling. And when in Michigan, ask for North Coast at your favorite shop, North Coast. There is no doubt that autoflowering cannabis plants have finally come into their own. And Night Owl Seeds works tirelessly, bringing you autoflower genetics that are reliable, thriving, and with extraordinary terpene profiles. Night Owl Seeds is an industry leader because of the focus work of their founder, Daz. Daz's passion about the cannabis plant and pushing what autoflowers can do, and cultivators know that these efforts show through in his seeds. And night owl seeds really are extraordinary. Just take a look at the thousands of photos by fans on Instagram. The proof is there and obvious. Terpenes are complex and rich. Plants have vigor. If you are a fan of Mephisto genetics like I am, you'll likely also love night owl seeds. Night Owl founder Daz worked with Mitch Mephisto to build the Mephisto brand for years, including breeding Mephisto's much-loved Sour Stomper and Cosmic Queen cultivars. I'm growing both Night Owl and Mephisto this year because I want the best. And Night Owl Seeds knows how to cultivate community, too. Daz puts out great stickers, exclusive packaging for limited runs, and desirable freebies. He really draws you in if you love creative branding. Night Owl even has the Secret Owl Society Text Club. Just text the word Night Owl, one word, to 760-670-3130 for early announcements and exclusive opportunities. Of course, you can see lots of photos and find out about upcoming drops by following the Night Owl Seeds Instagram, too, at daz.nightowl. That's D-A-Z dot Night Owl. You can get your packs of Night Owl Seeds at several distributors, including DC Seed Exchange, Insane Seeds, and Hembra Genetics. That's Night Owl Seeds. There's a difference because we're different. For years, organic cultivators have been looking for a peat moss replacement. Peat moss has long been the go-to soil amendment for water retention and container growing, but organic growers are recognizing now that peat moss is an unsustainable resource, and the mining of peat bogs destroys wetland habitats and releases sequestered carbon. But peat moss works so well that many have continued to use it. Now there is finally a revolutionary replacement for peat moss that provides better benefits while being a sustainable choice. Pit moss sounds and acts like peat moss, but instead of being mined from fragile ecosystems, is actually made from upcycled organic paper and cardboard headed for landfills. 
Pit moss is excellent at retaining water in your substrate and creating air pockets and tiny living environments for microbes. Pit moss instantly increases aeration, nutrient absorption, and water conservation too. Carefully and locally sourced, pit moss is the result of decades-long research into the use of recycled paper fibers. Pit moss is lightweight and easy to use, and pit moss is inert so it won't change your pH. Available in a range of preparations including a nutrient-enhanced blend and an organic soil conditioner with no added nutrients. Pit moss is also available as an animal bedding for horses, chickens, and small animals. You can save 15% with the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps, when shopping on pitmoss.com. So go to pitmoss.com now to learn more. That's P-I-T-T-M-O-S-S dot com. Growing healthier, stronger, more sustainable plants. Pitmoss. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shangolos, and my guest today is soil biologist Leighton Morrison. So before, during the break, Leighton and I were talking about uh, the inputs that, uh, for this cold compost, um, because when I uh, visited him there in Ventura, uh, I don't know, right before... COVID started. Um, he had all this stuff in his backyard that he was growing. It all looked like like weeds and shrubs and stuff. And I'm all like, oh, what, what, you know, what are these plants? And you're like, oh, I'm growing this stuff for my compost. And I didn't think much about it and moved on. Um, but it's not until today that I realized, um, whereas most of us will wildcraft our inputs for the compost or, or we just produce it like, you know, um, you know, air quotes accidentally on our property. Um, Leighton, you actually are growing um, green inputs that you know you like for making your cold compost. And the idea of of growing specific things intentionally just to to kill it for your compost is really interesting. And 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 I found it kind of inspiring. And I'm probably not the only one. So b- before we like move on. Um, why, don't, why don't you just hit on that? Like, like what, do, what are you growing for your compost and, and why do you bother? <laughs> well, that's a good question, um, Chango. Uh, I've found that, again, diversity, diversity, diversity um, is the key to making some incredible uh, end products. And so, um, yeah, I grow uh, indigenous uh grasses, pollinator plants, um, flowers, uh, even, even some little shrubs. And, and basically I don't kill them. I just cut them back, uh, from time to time. Um, I don't let things go to seed that I put into the pile. So if I see something that's going to seed out, I either just let it seed out, um, and then wait till it's done seeding and then take the brown because the plant dies after it seeds out um, and just make sure that I'm getting all the seeds off of it and leave them in place in the soil. Um, And then the greens, of course, I I trim back the grasses. I love flowers in my compost pile. Um, I think they just bring a whole nother level of um, biological uh, superfoods to to the decomposers that they wouldn't ordinarily get. Um, so yeah, I think that everybody, if you got a little corner somewhere, you can obviously just buy green manure seeds or wildflower seeds or whatever, whatever's locally grown or, uh, locally responsibly grown in your area. Why wouldn't you? And again, you know, I'm, I'm blessed. I don't go through a, 
uh, a harsh winter here. Um, yes, we have certain plants that do die back in in the colder weather, but for the most part, everything pretty much grows year round. So I'm very blessed in that regard. But if I was to say do this in, in New England, um, I typically would build a pile in spring and I'd build a pile in fall. So I'd be harvesting, um, you know, the the whatever I could get my hands on in the spring, like the new stuff that was popping up. Um, and then in the fall, I would obviously be collecting stuff uh, throughout the summer to to build the pile in the pile in the fall. So it's a little bit trickier in in an area where you have a true hard winter um, to do this. But even if you only built one pile a year, you'd be fine. Um, but you, yeah, there's no reason why you can't harvest um, the the local, you know, or grow whatever you feel is, is important for your area. Um, and then you use the biomass in your compost pile. I like the idea. Cause you, you kind of put it on its head, right? Cause like I take this stuff, you know, I grow flowers and all this kind of stuff on my property too. And I just, they naturally find their way into a pile. But the fact that you kind of went backwards and you're like, okay, what stuff do I like in my compost that, and that, now I'm going to grow that. Like um, it's it's a diff, it's it's a, it's a subtle but important difference from oh I, I grew all of this stuff because I just like the flowers and I hope it makes good compost versus I want good compost so I'm going to pick the flowers and grasses that make good compost that also. I happen to like it's like it's it, it changes the direction of the decision making and I find that uh, kind of delightful. Yeah, and and don't get me wrong. I mean, I'll actually like pull up roots and use those in the compost as well. So if something seeds, I'll let it seed out and then I'll pull that plant because I know I've got seeds that are going to happen pop next year and I'll, I'll compost that root ball because that's got the rhizosphere in it. Right on. So, all right. So here we are in set three. And, um, the, the two main things I want to talk about is first, um, uh, you know, you have talked about the mechanical ways in which you manipulate the organic matter to make more porous community opportunities for all the life forms in the rhizosphere. And, um, you know, We've kind of just hit on that a little bit, and then I've referred to it as massaging, but like I've been to your workshop and seen all the stuff that you do, and and I think so far we've given everybody a pretty good um, roadmap for how to make this at, at their house, except for this part. So would you um, take us through the different mechanical manipulations that you work the organic matter through so that it is optimum for an inoculant um, process. Yeah, sure. As a matter of fact, I recently <laughs> did a, uh, a video, a one hour lecture and uh, an outline with a friend of mine, uh, Jimmy Perkins, um, who's actually going to put it up online at some point. And we talked about charging 50 bucks for it. Um, but it would be a great resource for people um, to actually physically see it, what I'm talking about and how I go about it. Um, so that's, that's something that it was designed for uh, the homeowner. So it's, it's using mechanical forces on a smaller scale than what I do. Um, but needless to say, these mechanical forces are scalable. Um, so I have a 85 gallon compost or excuse me, um, um, 
yogurt maker that I converted into uh, one of my strippers. Um, and actually, I call her Raquel. <laughs> <laughs> and my other stripper, I call her Sandy because uh, I went through Superstorm Sandy and Sandy Hook in New England. And I said, you know what? Poor Sandy's got a bad name. Let's let's make something good out of the name Sandy. So the one that I travel with is, is Sandy. And it was basically a older washing machine that I converted um, to do this, uh, what I call soft collision. So in a soft collision, think about, uh, the two of us standing in a pool, um, you know, up to our neck in water and underwater, I punch you like, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel the force of it, but it's not going to hurt you. Like if we were standing in the air and I did that, you, you'd feel some serious pain. So that's the kind of philosophy that I want you to think about when you are talking about soft colliding, um, organic materials or matters together in a way that you're brushing off the, the loose pieces, uh, the fungi, the, the, the biology, um, you're not damaging it. You're, you're basically using its own biomass to to break off the pieces that um, are suitable and ready to be used um, as poem um, to inoculate your soil. All right. So number one is soft colliding using a washing machine. Would you give a quick description of of your retrofit of that washing machine? Yeah. Um, do you have to find a really old machine? Um, the newer ones have uh, a lot of different sensors and computers, thanks to China, um, which I've tried desperately to convert uh, to many, many lost hours and frustration because as soon as I get rid of this control, that sensor is tripping and now the machine won't go on or, or I, I keep this control, but I get rid of that sensor because I don't want it. And then now this control will no longer function properly. So you have to find a very uh, old machine. Like it, I don't think you can get them anything after 2000s, you're probably not going to be able to convert. Um, so that being said, there's not a huge pool of these pieces of equipment that have survived uh, that long in a junk pile. So it's it's not a particular easy um, way to go about this. I mean, I did I did this conversion back uh, in about 2010 was when I made it. Um, but I had access to, you know, used appliance stores that were, you know, had plenty of older inventory that I could manipulate. Um, so bottom line is, you know, you, you have to gut it. So you have to take the whole thing apart, power wash the inside, get rid of all the residues, all the soap scum. Um, you got to replace bearings, um, you know, check for uh, wire frays. Um, but you're basically looking at, you know, taking all of the wiring out of it. So you basically have two functions, spin and agitate and no time restriction. Like all those little control, the, the little dial, you bypass that whole thing. So it it's not something for the lighthearted. You've got to be somewhat of a, a mechanical or high mechanical aptitude and somewhat of an inventor to actually do this. Um, but it's possible. If I did it, anybody can do it. So that being said, um, the, the more simple way uh, for – uh, a user-friendly small-scale application is to just use a paint mixer or a compound mixer 
um, and a cordless drill on a low setting. And that's where I did this video with, with Jimmy so that, uh, you know, people could see, oh, wow, this is really actually quite simple. Um, and in, in my work, I've, I've taken it a little bit further because I'm really trying to produce the most powerful inoculant I can. So I also use, um, along with agitation, I use aeration. So I, I have a, a little air pump <clears throat> that, that pumps air in down into the agitator. And on the agitator, I created these whips out of polyethylene pipes that go all the way out to the edge of the barrel. So when that's going back and forth, those are basically acting as a sweep to sweep the material off the floor of the uh, washing machine. And with the aeration now, as it sweeps, it's blowing the stuff up into the, you know, higher up into the water column and then only to sink back down in the center and repeat, agitate and repeat, 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 or what is it? Rinse and repeat. So by doing that, I'm, I'm adding uh, another level of um, physical force to this organic matter. Uh, so it's colliding on the way up, it's getting swept, it's getting ground, it's getting pushed into each other. Um, and then, of course, I'm adding a tremendous amount of oxygen, dissolved oxygen, into the aqueous solution uh, of fish, brew, and water. So I'm really getting another added benefit by by doing that. But again, without without a proper piece of equipment, it's a lot more difficult to do that. Um, the yogurt mixer has sweeps on the outside pushing in. Um, it's a cone bottom. And of course, I've used a, a tremendous amount of oxygen blowing up through the center of that. So like, that's creating that same aeration um, agitation that I did with the, with the washing machine. Um, and then on top of that, I have two impellers opposing each other. So one impeller is pulling from the bottom and throwing it up. And the impeller above that is actually throwing, pulling from the top and throwing down. So I'm getting three levels of, of agitation with that piece of equipment. And I, the reason why is because I'm trying to do it um, as efficient and as quick as possible. So I'm using all the different forces uh, possible to, you know, again, produce a high volume of, uh, you know, super powerful inoculant in a short period of time. So if, if this washing machine that you have um, uh, messed with, it's got the uh, organic material and water in it, um, What's coming out of it? Like, like. Um... All right. So inside the barrel, um, you'll see that it's got holes, little tiny, you know, eighth inch drill holes mm -hmm. all the way around it. So that drill, those drill holes are acting as a screen. So when I'm washing my compost, anything bigger than an eighth inch isn't going to get through those holes. It just stays in the barrel. And when I spin it, I'm now pulling all of that moisture out of that product or out of what's left in the barrel and then what's left in the barrel i just scoop up and i throw it right back in the compost pile again so that's the first level of screening and so and 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 the water that's coming out of it that is not a waste product no that's actually the, the that's the goodies that's the point so yep. so you're using the water and the agitation to um, strip everything out of your organic material. Um, and while, while you're still going to throw that organic material back in the pile, the goal is to um, have the organic material give up its goodies. 
Right, right. And release all the humic acids, fulvic acids, secondary tertiary metaplates, along with all of the biology that went in there. And again, I'm using fish brew in that process. So I'm basically using uh, about a gallon and a half of fish brew and about three and a half to four gallons by volume of compost in that one process. Now, on a smaller scale, you can do this in a compound bucket and, and you know, buy a quarter or a gallon of uh, fish brew, um, add that in there with, you know, a couple handfuls of compost, you know, agitate for 15, 20 minutes on slow, and you'll get the same end results. Um, you just won't have been as efficient in removing all of those organisms and components that you're looking for. Right on. And um, I know you and I both share a uh, a love of the fish brew product, but I'm always trying to make people uh, self-sufficient. So if somebody doesn't want to buy the fish brew, they can you know go their own way and collect fish poop. So find themselves an aquaponics company or whatever. The the point is is that you know fish brew is the easy way to go but but you can also do this if you use your aquarium water oh absolutely aquarium water is wonderful i mean personally i don't know why every farmer does not have at least a friggin uh, you know aquarium at the <laughs> and instead why not a fish pond why not you know i always promote uh, aquatic microorganisms as so important and one of the biggest missing pieces from the soil because we don't have mass migration anymore we the soil used to get inoculated every time a, a migration occurred but that doesn't happen anymore so uh, amos are in my mind the the foundation of of creating regenerative healthy soil um so without them uh, what are you really accomplishing so another way to to get aquatic microorganisms is to do a um a, a wild craft of kelp or or algae uh duckweed any of those things um and you basically any aquatic plants you put them in a bucket put the wire mesh on top put a brick on it so that the plants are all submerged below the water put it in the hot sun um for three to five days depends on where you are and what temperature you're at um, but what you'll see is a white frothy foam that raises to the surface and again it's going to have a funky smell so your body's going to be like ew i don't that's weird what is that so you're going to kind of get a reaction to it it's not going to smell like poop um, but it's not going to smell like forest floor either it's going to smell funky kind of like those mushroom blocks um, but that is a very powerful aquatic microorganism uh, inoculant that you can pour on your compost pile and you know it, it's funny that that you say that about fish brew and i just traveled the entire country and i we did soil micro uh soil awareness classes i i think i did seven of them um, across the country and, and i had the same answer at every one of them i'm like dude you need fish brew dude you need fish brew and i got to the point where i was like man these people probably think i own fish brew <laughs> and in reality i don't i have no stake in it all i can tell you is that i've been using that product since rodale since the inception of trying to do this at Actually, before Rodale, I'd come to realize that there was something really special about fish manure um, because every time I poured it on a plant, I'd see plant reaction. That's the whole reason I went down to Rodale to talk to this woman named Elaine, who I had no idea who she was, and show her this stuff and put it under the microscope. And she came back and goes, holy shit, where did you get this? So it is the, the, the missing piece 
of the pie, the biology. Just like in soil science, they're missing the biology. Everybody's missing the biology. And can you do this with your own compost? Absolutely. You have two choices, time or money. How much time you got? If you don't have a lot of time, then you need to spend the money. If you don't have a lot of money, then you've got to spend the time. But can you do it without fish brew? Absolutely. But it's going to take time and, and trials and, and you know learning how to work with um, aquatic organisms. All right. So back to how you are mechanically uh, breaking up and stripping your soil. We've got the first one, which is your soft colliding uh, washing machine. Um, mm-hmm. What's another one? Okay. So soft colliding, um, aeration, dissolved oxygen in the water. Again, adding those other elements because every time that bubble comes up, it pushing something out of the way and displacing and putting it back into mechanical uh back into a mechanical force position. Um, so then after you go through uh, those basic, or I want to call beginning processes of, of pulling apart the organic matter, um, the next would be uh, through dewatering. So by dewatering, there's a couple of different ways to do it. Um, there are some really cool screw presses where you'd feed in this slurry at the top of it, and it has a big auger in it, and it presses that material until the liquid oozes out the sides, and eventually you just get this cake that comes out the end, where where when the screw pressure has gotten so great that the end of it will kind of open up a little bit and let let some of the dewatered organic matter to spill out into the waste pan. Um, I've also used uh, personally. I've I've went toward um, what's called a concrete vibrator. Um, It's used to mount on the walls of foundations so that you're vibrating the concrete to get all of the air out of it. And I use that um, in conjunction with a metal or wood frame and with a uh, stainless steel mesh screen that I string like a guitar. Um, and then I suspended on these rubber isolators so that the vibration is only occurring on the screen and not vibrating everything else around it. So I've basically isolated the vibration. And when I hit the certain, if you do this, you get the variable speed and you turn it up or down and you'll get this point where it's called resonance when everything is vibrating and the liquid just pours out of it. If you're if you're not right, you, what's going to happen is the top is going to start vibrating and you're going to see all this air bubbles and stuff coming up. But when you hit that sweet spot, that resonance, you're not seeing any surface action on the top, but you're just hearing the water pouring out of the bottom. Um, that has a couple of different advantages. Um, first of all, yes, you're getting the maximum amount of liquid out of that organic matter that is otherwise oversaturated um but through vibration you're exciting electrons and this gets really fucking deep um but excited electrons tend to want to interact with each other um they want to hold they want to bond um so one of the most interesting phenomenons behind this process is that i noticed after i've vibrated it and say I want to sift out some rejuvenate or some alliance, which is one of the two products, the solid products that I make. Um, I will see, you know, the liquid goes through and then the clumps on the surface 
start to clod. They start to attach. They, they start to form microaggregates almost immediately. It, it's, it's crazy, Shango. Um, and I've noticed too that when I take it to the next level and, and, you know, stabilize or completely dewater the alliance or the rejuvenate, um, I basically put it in a giant press. Uh, screw press and I just keep cranking it um, until I squeeze out what is literally pure fulvic acid um, I then take that cake and I again run it through a vibrating screen to create that soft fluffy stuff that you talked about earlier in the show mm-hmm. when you put that stuff <laughs> on soil oh my god Automatically, clay platelets, uh, sand particles, they just start to bond together and create these microaggregates. I, I can only explain it through my understanding of, of quantum mechanics that when you stimulate um, electrons and, and protons, um, that you can actually create these uh, paramagnetic charges um, that begin to um, want to attract or repel based on their charge. I know, that was a deep one. No, no, makes sense, though. So I've got five of these so far. Soft colliding washing machine, aeration bubbles, dewatering press, concrete vibrator, and then a vibrating screen. What else? Mm-hmm. What else? Is that it? Or is another one? I would say that's the majority of it. I mean, again, um, y- your goal here is to lower the moisture value of the product if you're trying to make it shelf stable if 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 shelf stability isn't an issue and you just want to make it and use it then you don't have to go through um all of these processes like you you can just like literally like just take it mix it i poured it into a paint strainer which was stupid i should have used a insect screen because in turn, we're only putting it in a watering can and watering it, so I don't need to take all the big chunks out of it. Um, the The more chunky it is, um, the better and higher level of inoculation that you can create uh, quicker. So again, the chunkier, the better. So I think those are pretty much the primary forces, and then it's just a matter of all right, how are you applying it, okay. and that'll t- that'll drive you to all right. I got how to screen it to this level because I'm running it through a diaphragm pump. Please do not use centrifugal force. Centrifugal force creates cavitation. Cavitation kills biology. So you don't want to have any kind of uh, mechanical uh, pumps that, that will create cavitation or centrifugal force. You, you want to use a diaphragm pump. So if you are using a diaphragm pump and you've got spray rig or, or nozzles that you got to deal with, then you have to screen to that level to get it out there in the field. So I want to, I want to take a pause here and, and like for people who possibly like me, these last five steps that you have mentioned, um, are very um, off-putting, right? Because like I'm not, I, I, I wouldn't do this stuff, right? And, <laughs> and I think it's important to to point out that the the, the point of the show was to uh, encourage folks to make a cold. Um, a cold compost, which is essentially a um, organic material microbe inoculant. And you don't have to do this last part. All you needed to do was just not, ha- not you know, put the care into collecting your plants and then not let the pile get too hot. 
um, like that's that's it. That that's the whole point of what we're encouraging folks to make. And but but you, to do it right, you need to do things like you know make sure you avoid your pathogens by using plant material only, and make sure it doesn't get too hot. And then like the stuff that we talked about during set two, these things that we're talking about now. Uh, number one, they remove the water to make your final um, material shelf stable, but also by breaking it up, it creates um, lots of places for microbe life to attach to the soil. Like, like it means that the, the 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 compost will be quickly integrated into wherever you place it, and also um, increases the places for community right because there's all these like 360 degree ridges everywhere but 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 if if we lost you here at the beginning of set three with this mechanical stuff um don't lose heart because you don't you don't have to do this part this is this is really just a way to finish it if you need to you know make it stable where you're gonna you know make it once a year and then let it sit all year right you don't have to do this no you don't have to do this but the reason that this is important to understand is all about delivery so we've grown these organisms we've we've done the work we've made this beautiful biologically rich compost how do we get that biology into the soil um effectively and efficiently the only way to do that is with liquid because the liquid will help move those organisms down into the soil profile you take your compost this amazing stuff that you made and you top dress well 50 percent of it's going to get oxidated and die or exposed to uv and die so how effective did you get those microorganisms down into the soil not very effectively. You lost fifty percent of them. So you're actually making two products here. Um, the the one product is the actual low moisture um, inoculated compost. That even though you know you've removed most of the water, it is still brimming with life, and and it's essentially a dry good that you can sell in a bag. But then there's a secondary product or useful product, um, which is the the water that keeps on coming out of. This this stuff which is just also brimming with life and and that you're you know we don't care about it being shelf stable you're just going to pour that on your plants right and that's the key again is delivery so how do we get these microorganisms uh into a condominium where they have food water and cover and then how do we get them down into the soil profile where they're going to be safe and sound and and continue to grow and inoculate so the 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 other product that we're talking about is harmonize um highly unstable like if you leave this in a bucket for a day maybe two you're talking about the water right yeah the liquid um it's going to go anaerobic because there's just so much what's called biological oxygen demand, BOD. Because there's so much going on in activity, they're stripping the dissolved oxygen out of that water at such a fast rate that it, it can't survive. And if it goes anaerobic, well, now I've defeated my whole purpose. My purpose was to get minerals, nutrients, biology into the soil so that it could do its work and it was no longer mobile. In other words, if it rained, it didn't wash away. But if I go anaerobic, I've basically made a nutrient solution 
that's all the plant needs right there in that liquid, even though it smells like hell. If I pour it on that plant, the plant's going to be able to take it up really quickly. But if it rains or I water, I've washed it all out of the profile. So I think that's the real missing piece is mobile or not mobile. What am I producing? And my goal was always to produce non-mobile nutrients that in the form of biology that could be there for as a nutrient bank for forever, for thousands of years. So that's, again, the, the mechanical side of this is how to effectively and efficiently deliver this very sensitive biology down into a place where it is safe and it has food, water, and cover. And if you are somebody like me who is very interested in a cold compost, but I'm not going to do the mechanical aspects of this, it is also fabulous and way better than your thermal compost if you were to just make this cold compost pile and then make a compost tea with it and just pour it on your plants and get right to it. That's the that's essentially what we did. We made a compost extract, not a tea. Like, yeah, you could take this biological compost, throw it in your brewer, whether you put it in a bag or free brew it, personally, I would free brew it, um, which is basically just throw handfuls in there, bubble it for uh, 30 hours. Again, we, we need to touch base on that, why that's such a critical point in time. Um, but <clears throat> now I've made a compost brew. So I've, I've taken a handful of this compost that I made, the cold compost, threw in a little bit of sugars. Again, it's uh, you want to make sure you're using um, – Unsulfured black strap molasses, uh, no more than one ounce per 20 gallons. If you do use more, you're going to raise the biological oxygen demand, BOD, and you're going to have an anaerobic shit show. So you've got to eat very, very little bit of foods. You bubble it for 30 hours and then use it up by hour 36. The reason being is that between hour 20 and hour 24 is when you start to get your high level of protozoan production. In other words, you've provided the bacteria, you provided the deer. Now, all of a sudden, the lions, the bears, and the wolves are coming in and they're breeding like crazy because there's so much food in the source. And that's why it's critical that you wait till hour 30 so that you've had a good six to eight hours of high level of protozoan production because at the end of the day, everybody's missing the protozoa. It's all about the protozoa. We all have bacterially dominant soils. So what is the missing piece? Protozoa. They're the ones that are eating the bacteria and releasing that plant available. So the other point is that, yeah, if you just took this this cold compost and you threw it in some water and agitated it with your hands and then poured it on your plants now you've basically made a compost extract with it so do you need the mechanical stuff no you can use your hands but if you're going to take the time to actually massage it with your hands for a period of time wouldn't it have been easier to use a power drill (laughs) you know so go ahead yeah no, I was going to say, it's, it's all about delivery. How are you getting those organisms into the soil the most effective and efficient way? And I think the key to this is go ahead and make your cold compost pile. And once you have that, there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can apply it. But, but 
we're encouraging you to make the pile and don't overheat it. And once you have that, you can do it the easy way, which is how I will be doing it, which is to take a, you know, a few handfuls and bubble it up for 30 hours and put it on your plants. You want to take that further because, you know, maybe you're scaled and you want this to be available to you in a few months. Well, then go through more of the mechanical stuff, press out the water, and then you can, you can put that, um, that compost on the shelf and it will be ready for you when you need to use it in a few months and you can use that water now. So, um, but, but really it's all about getting, getting that pile made and not having the pile get hot. I'm into that. Dude. All right. It's all about making ingredients. One interesting uh, footnote I would like to throw in here is that people will be astonished at all the unexpected benefits that come from using a um, a biology-rich cold compost. And the one example that I want to have, because it's really hard to say, oh, my plant's color got so much better, and, and oh, like, like, like the, the flowers were so good, and oh my gosh, the flowers tasted better. I felt like it had a wider terpene profile than I normally get. All that's true, but it's really hard to, 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 to measure that. But what I can tell you is... If you go back in, my, in the Shaping Fire Instagram, you know, we've got these this four by four indoor bed that, um, you know, even though I'm using electricity for LED lights, I'm trying to use regenerative techniques indoors. Uh, it kind of is an experiment um, because, you know, doing rege- regenerative stuff indoors has got its own challenges. And so I, I did that and um, I ended up with a uh, fungus gnat breakout for whatever reason. And, um, and I'm like, you know, I, I'm talking with my providers about the beneficial insects I want and all this kind of stuff. And, and I call you to bitch because we're friends and we do that. And I'm like, ah, I got this situation. And you're like, oh, let me send you up this cold compost um, that I've made and then bubble it up and pour it on your bed. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't understand how a, you know, a freaking compost tea is going to, um, you know, get rid of my gnats. If anything, it's going to make the soil more wet and I'm going to get more fungus gnats. And you're like, well, first of all, it's not a tea. It's an extract. And I'm like, oh, all right. And, uh, and, and, and then, but then you said, you said, just do it. And I'm like, all right, well, I trust you enough. I just, you know, very often I will just do the stuff you say and, and, and then watch for the event. Benefit. And then, and so that's what I did. And I'll be damned. It was like, I, 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 I made this and I put the five gallons of it. Um, first I, 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 uh, I sprayed it on the top. So I made sure that I got all the top areas, but then I just kind of like poured the rest in. And, um, you know, I was, I had no fungus gnats within 48 hours. I was flabbergasted and I called you and I'm all like, what kind of sorcery is this? And, and, and how did you explain it to me? <laughs> it is sorcery. No. <laughs> um, basically what you did was you threw down a bunch of hungry microbes uh, and with a food source of, of fungal larvae, uh, fungal gnat larvae all over the place. So they just went to town. It was like buffet time. 
So yeah, so so the the predators essentially that were in this highly inoculated extract, they went and they ate all the larval of the of the fungus gnats and like I never even considered that approach to fungus gnats and it worked nearly instantly and was like, you know, very economical to do. Um but that is just an example I want to give folks for, you know, once you start, I mean, we all love the microbes, right? And we all believe in IMO and we all believe in using nature as our ally, but this is kind of next level. Um, and I encourage folks to, to, to do it. So, all right. So, uh, in, in, in bringing us kind of like to a close here, Layton, you know, we, we, we talked about, you know, what kinds of compost or things that are called compost are available to us. And, and we talked about what those options were like. And, and, and some of them like verma, vermiculture compost, we freaking love. And, and some of it like the bag stuff we don't really love. Um, but, but the one thing was that we wanted to encourage folks to not heat their piles. And so so people go ahead and they 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 don't heat their piles. They're using clean non-pathogenic um green materials and browns and 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 then they and they have this and they make it and so now they've got what? What is going to be the nature of the pot container or the soil if you're going right in the ground kind of bring us home here by describing the nature of the soil after this application versus the nature of their soil before the application and we'll end with this okay uh, that's probably the whole point of this conversation is soil aggregate Um, that's the reason you use compost um, and that's the reason we use microbes is because they actually form um, aggregation. And what is aggregation? Aggregation is like a little clump of sand, silt, and clay and organic matter. Um, inside that clump is, is waterfalls and, and ponds and cities and walkways and parks and all kinds of different creatures and organisms um, considered a zoo. Hmm. And so... Inside that, and it's in this article that talks about the magic, the the biogeochemical reactions that are happening inside that aggregate. Um, It's we don't have tools to measure this yet. We don't have the technology to test it or monitor it or actually scope it in situ. Um, There is a new instrument that that was invented, I believe, last year. That is a microscope that you push into the soil. And you can leave it there for for days, weeks, and monitor this shit. Um, Those are the kinds of tools that we're going to need to really advance our understanding on how valuable soil aggregates are. And aggregates are a combination of fungi, bacteria, protozoa, uh, the physical side of it, as well as the chemical side of it. It is 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 the triple threat. It's the physical, the chemical, and and the biological coming together. Together. And that's why the aggregates are so important. <clears throat> Again, aggregates let the oxygen down, lets the CO2 out, back up to the plants. It holds water. Um, it allows uh, water to infiltrate um, into the soil, so it's not just running off and creating erosion. So aggregation is is the, the critical foundation to soil health. You can't have aggregates without good biology. It doesn't exist. You have you have compacted soil because you don't have the biology. 
But once you have the biology and the organic matter in play, you will begin to form aggregates. So again, that's why I went through this whole process of vibrating shit and elect uh, exciting the electrons, so they will form these aggregates extremely quickly. That's the whole purpose of taking this biological compost and uh, manufacturing it, for lack of better words, um, so that you're getting a faster response um, in in building the soil health and building those aggregates. Fabulous. So, you know, it, it's not lost on me, and I, I think this is one of the reasons why, as I learned more about cold compost extracts, why I kept on pursuing this until I figured out what this was enough to do a show about it. I really think that this is the future of regenerative farming. I think that, you know, thermal compost has been a great tool for the times. Um, but we are sophisticated enough now to know how to work with the microbes and to know that, you know, our biggest role is to a stop fucking killing all the microbes. And then second, you know, add microbes and help them help incubate them and make more of them as much as possible because we're not really the ones that are going to clean up the mess we've made. It's really the microbes that are. And so if we are dedicating ourselves to not only working within the natural forces of the earth, but also to play our role to maximize them. I think that's the only direction that makes sense. Agreed, hundred percent. I mean, we've we've learned how to break shit down. Now we got to learn to put things back together again, the way nature would have through biomimicry, and not not through <laughs> our ego, if for lack of better words. I think um, I think that is the best word, man. Leighton, thank you so much. You know, um, I always appreciate you, um, you know, both our friendship and then having you on the show, but this was extra special today. And um, I, I appreciate you sharing these these insights, some of them pretty damn revolutionary, <laughs> and um, and also, you know, slogging through three hours of this. I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm not even the one that was talking. So, um, so thank you so much, man. I, I really appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate you too, Shango. You've been doing a lot of hard work for many years, and you bring a very important message to to the community as well as the general population as a whole. And so it's an honor. It's a pleasure for me to uh, be able to share what I've learned and my experiences with you and, and your audience. So thank you. Right on. So if you want to uh, follow along with uh, Layton's exploits, there are two ways to do that. Um, the first way is uh, on Instagram. Uh, you can follow his Instagram profile at Kingdom Aquaponics. LLC. And I'll tell you straight up, like he's not a huge social media guy because he's usually filthy and in the field. Um, but he, he does post stuff to, um, the Instagram. It is always interesting. And when he goes on tours, you'll find all that stuff. And, you know, if, if you have some reason you want to reach out, um, he does check his Instagram messages. So, so that's Kingdom Aquaponics LLC. And then also, uh, you can also find Leighton every Thursday, uh, co host Hosting his own show on the Future Cannabis Project on YouTube. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. 
Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.